episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I spoke to Paul Rowlandson all about interleaving. And I tell you what, this is one of my all-time favourite conversations. But just before we dive into that, a quick word from our sponsors. Cue the fancy music. This episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast is proudly supported by ARC Maths. That's ARC with a C. Now, over the course of these nine episodes, you'll be hearing about cutting-edge research and its application to the classroom. And that is exactly what ARC Maths is all about. The ARC Maths app makes use of research into retrieval, testing, spacing and interleaving to design a personalised practice programme for each of your students that stops them forgetting the things they once knew. It strengthens their recall of core math skills and knowledge and keeps students systematically practising previous topics so you can teach new ones. There's no teaching element to it, it's just designed to support your teaching through regular recapping. On top of this, there is a brilliant handwriting recognition tool that can even cope with my dodgy scribbles and you can annotate the pictures and write on the working out screen. Unsurprisingly, the app has been shortlisted for Educational App of the Year at the 2021 BET Awards. Teachers can have a go with the ArcMaths app for free if they get in contact and mention the Mr. Barton Maths podcast. It's currently available for iPads, but phone and other tablet versions will be available from September. So just drop them an email at hello at arceducation.co.uk or contact them via the website. And there's links to both of those things in the show notes. And remember, that's Arc with a C, not a K. Back to today's episode with Paul Rowlandson. Now, long-time listeners may recall that this marks Paul's second appearance on the show, following his debut way back in February 2017. Paul is a maths teacher with a strong interest in research, so much so that he is now embarking upon a doctorate. Paul also holds the prestigious title of being none other than Joe Morgan's favourite ever maths blogger. His Thinking About series of posts are my particular favourite, where Paul explains in great detail how he thinks about putting together a sequence of lessons on a given topic, reflecting on his past mistakes, and sharing the logic behind his new question choices, activities, and so on. For teachers of any experience, they are absolute gold dust, but in particular, if you work with less experienced teachers, put them onto these because they will be loving it. Today, we certainly touch upon the importance of such choices as we take a deep dive into interleaving. As I tell Paul in the conversation, I became a little obsessed with interleaving when I first came across it via the work of Robert Bjork as part of my research for How I Wish I Taught Maths. But on reflection, and especially having seen Paul's research ed talk, I'm not sure I fully understood the nuances, the explanatory mechanisms, or the power of interleaving. 
Fortunately, Paul is here to help. And after this conversation, I feel much better informed and have some practical strategies to apply to my sequencing, worksheet design, choice of examples, low stakes quizzes, and much more. And I hope you will too. Two quick plugs before we move on. Uh, first, as I mentioned last episode, I spent the entire summer updating the ultimate scheme of work on ED uh, or diagnostic questions. The current iteration, which I'm calling version 2.0 to get all nice and trendy, contains 800 quizzes. I think in fact it's about 847 if I'm not mistaken, and over 8,000 questions that cover the whole year 6 to year 11 maths curriculum. And it's completely free. I've put together a free short course explaining all about it and all the fancy things you can do with it. And second, I've recorded a brand new CPD course that combines two of my favourite things in the whole wide world, that's variation and the self-explanation effect, to help supercharge worked examples, whatever your preferred style of delivery. I'm dead proud of this course, as I think it's super practical and will hopefully allow you to immediately improve your worked examples the very next lesson. Links to both of these courses are in the show notes. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce Paul Rowlandson. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, it gives me great pleasure to welcome back a fan favourite to the podcast, making his uh, second appearance. Um, Paul, how are you? I'm fine, thank you, Craig. How are you? Very, very good, thank you. Now, um, I was looking this up. We last spoke in 2017, February 2017, in fact, so about four and a half years ago, um, which is incredible, really. Um, So what have you been up to since, Paul? Just give us a bit of a recap. (laughs) Uh, Well, so last time I was on your show, um, back in 2017, I was um, working as a senior leader at Trinity Multi-Academy Trust, where I was focusing on our external projects, like setting up the teaching school and uh, White Rose Maths Hub, as it was back then. Um, but what I didn't tell you was that I was, at the time, four months into studying part-time for a doctorate in education. Uh, I'd only just submitted my first assignment, and I was waiting for back for the results when we were recording, so I wasn't really sure if I'd still be on the course when the podcast went out, so I didn't mention it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'd done, my, uh, I'd done a master's degree in teaching at Leeds University, which I talked about on the show last time. I enjoyed it so much that I tried to keep up with research afterwards, but you know, so many articles behind a paywall, and I was just really interested in doing something else. So I signed up for a six-year part-time course with um, Durham University uh, for a doctor in education. And uh, the year when I spoke to you, I was sort of juggling between senior leadership role and and that to sort of see how it went. But after passing my first few modules and being pretty sure I was going to be on the course to the end, <laughs> uh, I made a few hard career choices and decided to step down from senior leadership, go part-time, uh, so I could balance um, between doing uni work and uh, doing school work steadily throughout the year. And uh, I've been working as a lead teacher again, back at the same school, Trinity Academy, Halifax. Um, I had a year I was temporarily uh, stepped in as head of maths during the COVID times of 2020-21. Fun year for that. Um, but now I'm, I'm in, my, in my last year, hopefully, of my doctorate and uh, working part-time as a, as a lead teacher. and loving it. Wow, that is fantastic. We're definitely going to dive into your doctorate a little bit later on, because that'll, that'll tie in nicely with, with the research. Um, how, how do you find the balancing thing, Paul? Because I know possibly there'll be some listeners listening who will be trying to do a similar thing with a doctorate, but I also know lots of listeners will be doing um, masters in education and so on and so forth, trying to balance it. Um, how do you fit it in? 
uh, it was re- it's really, really tr- tricky because I think we all know that when you, when you work full-time as a teacher, you're actually working overtime. Yes. And if you're trying to put a part-time course on top of it, you end up with no time. <laughs> um, but I, I, during my master's degree, when I did that, I, d- I did a lot of things during the holidays. And at the time, I didn't have any responsibilities in school. So I could do uh, master's stuff at the weekends and, and, um, and the holidays and still sort of feel like I had a bit of headspace. Um, but um, I... In my first year of doing the doctorate, I was taking unpaid leave every now and again, which the school was really supportive with. Like, you know, let me take, be quite flexible with my role. Um, but I found working in fits and starts a bit tricky because mm. you, you get your head gets out of it and um, what have you. So um, I've managed it by um, going one, you know, four days a week. So I've got one day a week that I can just focus on uh, just on, on the uni stuff without any kind of uh, worries about school. But I know that's not necessarily possible for everyone, really. So it's it's a hard one, but um, uh, you just need to yeah find your own way through it. <laughs> Fantastic, superb. Well, um, I'm going to ask you my favourite question, which is about a favourite failure, Paul. Now, again, I'm hoping something in the nicest possible way. I'm hoping you failed in some some respects in the last four and a half years, and you've taken something away from it. So, have you got a new favourite failure for us? Uh, oh, ah, yeah. Um, well, my, my favorite failure is actually something a bit interleaving related. I know we're going to unpack interleaving throughout this podcast, um, but this story, I guess, sets the scene a bit. And that was um, when I first came across the idea after listening to your uh, podcasts and reading a few things. I'll be honest, I went a bit interleaving nuts. I started applying a strategy everywhere in all sorts of places. I think I sent you a, like a big, long message once saying all yes. like, the millions of <laughs> things I was doing with interleaving. Um <laughs> Well, anyway, our maths department um, is a part of a multi-academy trust, and we had this bank of homework sheets that are all based on single topics, like a homework on equations, homework on area and angles. And I lobbied our head of maths, uh, sorry, director of maths, uh, Mark, to replace all these homeworks with mixed topic ones so we could like, you know, tap into interleaving. I said, it would be, you know, it'd be really easy. We could just use the same questions but shuffle them up. He was a little unconvinced to begin with and uh, asked if there was a way to sort of test it out, to, you know, before we go full steam ahead um, with all year groups and all, all homeworks. So, and I thought, that's a great idea. I'm about to start this thesis where I'm going to have to do some research myself. So I could try my hand at doing a bit of a randomized control trial now, just to tip my toe in the water. Oh, my word. Dip my toe in the water. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, it would give me a bit of experience of what it's like to run research in a school and, um, you know, hopefully, well, most importantly, prove, Mark, that I was right about mixed topic homeworks. Um, so we took uh, six of our single topic homeworks, including the ones I mentioned earlier. We gave them to half our year eight classes across the trust over a space of a couple of months. And then I made six new ones, uh, which are mixed topic, using all the same questions, but just shuffled together. And we gave them to the other half of the year eights. Um, we did a pre-test, post-test and delayed post-test. And what we found was um, there was no significant differences between the results of the two groups. So I was absolutely gutted and I had egg all over my face. Um, but it was my favorite failure for two reasons. Uh, one was that um, it was a really shoddy piece of research. I'm perfectly honest with you. I didn't really quite know what I was doing. It was before I got properly into the course. The research results did not prove or disprove anything about interleaving because it was far from robust, not peer-reviewed, and uh, you know, it was never meant to be written up in the first place. It was just like a bit of like when you trial something out in the yes. school, but a bit extra stats in it. Um, but still, it made me realize how hard doing research is in schools. And um, it you know, gave me a lot more respect for, for, for researchers like, um, like Doug Rohrer and his colleagues who, who've, who've done some really big, robust 
randomized control trials of real students and, and they've gone well. I just like I really hats off to anyone who, who does that because it's really hard to do. But the uh, the second reason why it was a, a favorite failure was because I I was so sure that the mixed topic group was going to whoop the single topic group. <laughs> And it's a bit like that hypercorrection effect you talk about. You know, I was so sure about it. And the fact that it didn't happen, like lit a bit of a motivational fire in my belly mm. and made me realize that there's, there's a lot more to interleaving than I understood at the time from the initial reading. And that's kind of spurred me on over these last four years to kind of find out why um, it, 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 it surprised me so much, really. Um, so it's, it's, and I've referred, I, even though the, the results haven't led to anything, I, it's something I've thought about quite a lot over the last few years. When, And I'll come back to this later. I, I know we're going to talk about interleaving a bit more. And I'll be able to explain some of my ideas about why that homework experiment didn't work quite so well as I thought it would um, a, a little bit later on. Oh, that's fantastic. That's, that's a, a brilliant choice there. And it it rings true for me, this, Paul. I, I went a little bit interleaving crazy as well when I was researching my first book. And indeed, all of kind of Bjork's desirable difficulties, I thought, well, this has got to be the way forward. And we did a very similar thing in our school in Bolton with homeworks. We um, we, we mixed them up. They used to be very top, 100% topic-specific. And in, instead, we kept a bit of the topic-specific stuff in. But at the start, we had like a revision section, which was mixed topics from, from um, concepts that kids have met at various points in the past. And it was an absolute disaster because the, kid, the kids' <laughs> scores just went absolutely down the drain. And we had parents wow. phoning in saying, like, my my son or daughter used to be getting nine out of ten on their own, but now they're getting, you know, four out of ten. What's going on here? And that, that taught me a very big lesson that, and that was, well, a couple of things really, and I'm sure we'll dig into this because I've got a question for you later on this about when is the right time to start interleaving, how secure yeah. in a concept do, do students need to be before we start mixing things up. And I think that was one error we made. I don't think we did enough blocking, and I think we mixed things up a bit too quick. But the bigger issue was that we didn't tell we we didn't tell the kids why we were doing it. We didn't tell the parents mm. why we were doing it. A lot of the staff, I don't think, were convinced why we were doing it. And I think that's been a massive lesson I've learned over the last few years, just in general, that, that any new idea that I want to introduce with even just a class of kids or even just a few kids, unless I can get them on board with the with the why I'm doing it, I'm kind of fighting a bit of a losing battle, particularly if it's something like interleaving, which which is we know is harder. Harder for a good reason, but it may lead to a short-term dip in performance. Unless I've got the kids behind me and they're kind of ready for that and prepared for that, it can be, yeah, as I say, yeah, fighting a bit of a losing battle. Does that ring a bit true with you, Paul, as well? Yeah, that, that why bit is... is, is like one of the biggest things I think you know last time you asked me um what makes a good or bad question and I sort of said you know it's the purpose behind why you're doing it and I think it's the same with with anything really and and this kind of um I guess failure from myself at least was uh I think it's a bit symptomatic to a slightly bigger failure um and that is about sort of um taking research headlines and uh, all like little snippets of research and and extrapolating really yes. you know and uh, I, if, if I wanted to give like a slightly other example to illustrate this, yeah, um, I could talk about manipulatives and mathematics because I'm, I'm a big fan of using manipulatives. I'm, I'm, I'm not this, this, what I'm about to say isn't like a down on it. And I really, really enjoyed Peter Matic's episode a few years ago. That was brilliant. And the, um, the white rose train on manipulatives and stuff like that. And I you know, used it myself in the 11s recently. But the reason why I, um, I, I'm giving this example is because a few years ago, 
I did a presentation for our senior leadership team about um, educational research and trying to draw out this point about why you do things is important and the purpose behind things are important. And the EEF had uh, recently released that Improving Mathematics in Key Stage 2 and 3 article when I did it. And the, um, you know, the, the review evidence on different things in mathematics, and one of them was concrete manipulatives. So I thought I'd use that as a bit of a, a way to illog- il- illustrate nuance in research. And uh, you know, that, that article is brilliant. It's really well written. And it's, 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 um, it provides many cautions and limitations about every single one. It doesn't go like, uh, it, you know, it provides you know, enough detail without getting too bogged down. Um, but it could still be really inviting, I think, for a busy teacher mm. or leader to hear about the article or read it briefly and think, oh, manipulatives are great. Yes. Uh, they help students understand stuff. So I'm going to use them as much as I can in my lessons or the more manipulatives are used, the better I'll get and, and what have you. But like, the thing to bear in mind about the like, meta studies like, like this, um, the ones I refer to, is that they, they only report manipulatives having a positive effect on average, not universally. You know, and uh, so, for example... One of the meta studies is, oh, I can't remember, does that have to pronounce the name? Is it Carbono and Friends? Um, and they produce a, a positive overall effect size um, for, for a based on like 50 odd articles about manipulatives. Um, but, you know, the, um, even though lots of them, uh, those studies uh, report positive effect sizes, some of them, you know, have no significant difference between manipulatives in the comparison group. Some are negative as well. I initially, when I thought, read this, I thought, well, I wonder like, if it depends on age. Mm. Um, and I looked and I thought, well, no, there's, there's positive and negative effects um, for all age groups. So I thought, well, I wonder if it depends on topic. And um, you know, topics they list are fairly broad, but the, there are positive and negative effects on topics. And then well, I thought, you know, is it the type of manipulative? I was grasping at straws. <laughs> um, but no, again, positive and negative effects there. And in fact, there was like, there's, I think there's two studies referenced in this Carbono one, which uses the same instrument, the same t- broad topic in the same age group, and one gives a positive effect and one gives a negative effect. And therefore, it, I think it, it tells us that, you know, no strategy found in research necessarily, I don't, I don't know, uh, is universally like, good. I and mean, the more you use it, the better it is. I think... Um, like in terms of the effectiveness and manipulatives in this case, it, it clearly depends on something far more nuanced than just whether or not they're used and is probably down to, well, from a research point of view, it could be down to what the control group was doing. But from a pedagogical point of view, it's probably more down to precisely what they were used for, you know, uh, what they were used to convey and why they were used and, and how they were used to you know, show that. So I guess I'm a bit worried really about stuff like manipulatives and interleaving that. We might see kind of the same thing will happen with a card sort mania from from <laughs> fifteen years ago. You know, we might get a bit excited about it and then um, use it in ways that aren't necessarily helpful, and then think, oh, they're no good, and throw them all out. And, and it'd be a shame for that to happen. Um, to, to, to you know, stuff like manipulatives and and like like and interleaving and card sorts and stuff like that. Really, it's it's again another interesting point, and and just just a kind of general reflection on that. And, and feel free to to comment paul if, if it feels appropriate but this is something I, I recently did my second series of interviews with um researchers from loughborough university and this was one of the points that came up quite a bit in in those later episodes was that <clears throat> this I, I and i can certainly kind of reflect on this myself as, as a practitioner that i've gone from being completely research ignorant to then this phase of being yeah obsessed with research but 
particularly the headlines. So again, mm. when I when I first read about Bjork's desirable difficulties, I thought this this is an absolute game changer, and it has been a game changer. But it, as you say, it's unless you start delving into the nuances of of the research of, of the specific pieces of research you can get caught up in this headline and then kind of misapply it and you get these kind of lethal mutations that that chris bolton spoke about in the past mm. and now i think i'm kind of in this third phase so i've gone from ignorance to obsessed to hopefully <laughs> being a bit more considerate but the problem there is as you spoke out there you get so bogged down in, in these studies that some of them work and then some of them say it doesn't work. And that, then you, you left absolute. well, I, I feel clueless sometimes thinking, well, what the <laughs> hell am I supposed to do here? And almost wishing I'd never read this in the first place. It's really tricky, isn't it? And particularly for, for I mean, I've, I've got more time on my hands than the, the many teachers. And even I really struggle to keep up with everything. You read one paper and it references another and so on and so forth. So it's so tempting, isn't it? To kind of, grab onto these headlines or, or particularly something like Hattie's work on effect sizes, where the meta studies bring everything together. It's so tempting to grab onto these headline figures and try and apply the strategy. But as you've said, it's only when you start digging a bit deeper that you start to see it's a bit murkier than that. Is it, I don't know if that, that makes any sense at all, Paul, but it's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? It is, yeah. You know, and you know what? It, should, it shouldn't surprise us that educational research is so nuanced because teaching and learn are both very nuanced activities mm. and, and aren't just as simple as, you know, input, output and, and, and so on, really. Yeah, tricky one. Trick. Well, I'll tell you what, let, let's hold off no longer. Let's dive into interleaving. <laughs> so... A bit of background here, just just two things before we dive into it. First, um, as I've already mentioned, I, I'm I am still am interleaving obsessed, but I was certainly, mm. you know, four or five years ago when I was researching for my first book, I, I was absolutely all over this. And um, secondly, I was lucky enough to see you. Uh, well, about two thirds of your talk at Research Ed before I had to run off and get my train, and I thought it was absolutely fascinating and, and would make a brilliant podcast. So um, let's dive into it then, Paul. What, why, why interleaving? What, why did it interest you? What, what led you to this area? Well, initially, I thought I was going to do a thesis on something like variation theory, to be honest with you. That's what I put in my proposal when I was applying for universities before I started, but you converted me, Craig. Uh, <laughs> I love listening to your podcasts, uh, particularly, you know, like those, um, when I was first starting my, my course and I was, um, I remember that one with Dylan William, the first one, you know, he briefly touched on interleaving and spacing, uh, which really, which sparked my interest. Mm -hmm. And then I absolutely loved, and I was fascinated by that one we did with the Bjorks, you yes. know, it's still one of my favorite episodes. And I think I've probably re-listened to it more times than I've re-watched Twin Peaks, which is incredible. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a brilliant podcast. <laughs> Um, like interleaving it just sounds like such a simple idea yes. and I, so, something that could be easily implemented in the classroom and have a great effect. So I wanted to find out more about it. And from a research point of view, I wanted to help feel, uh, further the field of research in that area. And then from a pedagogical point of view, I wanted to uh, develop my own teacher knowledge in the, in the process of, um, of researching it. So that's kind of why I got into it um, and why I was interested in it really. And well, let, let's dive in with the um, with with the kind of definition. And it's interesting this because I make a point now in in teaching that that I often don't think it's useful to come in with a definition first because often it's better to see examples, non-examples, and so on and so forth. But for for the for the for the kind of structure of this, what, what how would you describe interleaving to somebody, Paul? Uh, well, I think the definitions do do vary a little bit between sources. I, I think if you look at um, 
uh, books that are written in the professional literature field they, they vary a little bit more than the academic literature but like not that much they, they, they you know it's just more so the angle they're coming at really um so i'll read out three and they just give um a bit of a sense of it so like for example roar in 2010 uh, suggests that when practice is interleaved rather than blocked the practice of different skills is intermixed rather than grouped by types uh, Jan and Sanna in 2021 um, use a similar thing, but slightly different words. And that is, they say, rather than focusing on one concept at a time, it might be effective to study and practice different concepts mixed together. And then Abel and Friends in 2021, so I know Etel isn't friends, but, um, <laughs> means that they say that um, in the block sequence, the learner is presented with all the exemplars of one category, followed by all the exemplars of the remaining categories um, in, you know, in, in blocks like that. Whereas in interleave sequence, in contrast, the exemplars of different categories are presented alternately. So in a nutshell, it's, it's about mixing things together or sequencing items in an order that frequently switches between different categories. And what, what I thought was really, really interesting in, in your talk was, uh, as, you, as you alluded to then, often the definition of interleaving is made in contrast to, to blocking. Mm. But I absolutely love the way that you made the point that the distinction between interleaving and blocking is not always as clear cut as, as it may seem. Could you just dive into that a little bit, a little bit for us now, Paul, perhaps with some examples, if that's OK? Yeah, this was the first place where I think I became a bit unstuck. Um, mm. Well, one was trying to distinguish between interleaving and, and spacing, which I can come back to a bit later, but um, was trying to think about uh, what interleaving and blocking look like in high school mathematics, which sounds like it should be quite straightforward, yeah. especially because a lot of the research has been done in mathematics. But many discussions about interleaving tend to paint quite a binary picture. You know, so something is either blocking or it's interleaving. You know, it's one or the other with, with no alternative options. But I don't think it's quite so black and white in mathematics because the curriculum itself is like a fractal. You know, every skill can be broken down into smaller skills and, and so on. So while the, the difference between interleaving and blocking sounds like it should be fairly clear cut from the description, pinpointing the line between the two in context ended up being a bit harder than I thought it would be. So in the, the research ed uh, presentation he came to, gives the example of, you know, imagine we've got a worksheet that contains a mixture of questions on um, trigonometry, averages, and adding fractions. Like those three things are from different strands of the curriculum. Um, the questions require different skills, different so solution strategies and formulas and so on. So if you were to try and, you had to put this in either blocking or interleaving, I think um, pretty much everyone would probably say it's interleaving. Mm. But then what would it take to make a worksheet into a blocking one? So we, we could think, for example, well, what happens if we make all the questions from the same strand of the curriculum? So if we had like a trigonometry question, a Pythagoras question, an area question, you know, those sort of things mixed together. Would that now be blocking because they're all geometry questions? Or on the other hand, could we still argue it's interleaving because we have three different topics mm -hmm. within geometry? So we can think, well, what happens if we make them all trigonometry questions? You know, would it now be blocking so that because they're all the same topic? Or is it still interleaving because we have questions that require to use the sin, sin theta equals opposite over hypotenuse formula? Some require to use cosine, some require to use tangent. And what we're doing is we're mixing together questions that require different formulas so that you have to uh, choose the right formula and learn when to use the right one for the right thing. That seems to be kind of a, a, like a, a description of interleaving. So that could be interleaving. 
So we can think, well, what happens if we make all the questions so that they all require to use sign? Um, could we now say it's blocking because all the questions require the same formula? But then you could have questions where the, um, the, the unknown is in a different position in the formula. You know, find the hypotenuse or the opposite or the angle. And in each of those situations, you need to use a different strategy to rearrange the formula to get to the solution. You know, one, you need to multiply. Another, you need to divide. Another, you need to use inverse sign. So you know, we might say we're interleaving three different cases of using the sign, rule for, sorry, the sign formula. Um, and each one requires a different strategy. So... Unless we, we draw a line somewhere along the way, we could end up narrowing this down until we end up with blocking and so blocking simply being just a set of questions that are so similar that the only real difference between them are the arbitrary features such as the numbers and orientations, which in the research studies by Rora, uh, like the 2019 one, that's what the blocked assignment looks like. Mm. I kind of think this is important for, t- uh, for, pe- for people to know for two reasons. One is a, like a practical reason, and that is if we know that is what the blocking worksheets look like, these kind of very, very similar questions, then um, it means we're less likely to reject or discard perfectly good worksheets on the basis of thinking that something more mixed would be better because interleaving has been found to be better than blocking in, in, some, in research. But then the second is a slightly more theoretical reason, and that is you know, if all those other worksheets I described earlier are can be thought of as interleaving just on different levels, then it's unlikely that they all have the same purpose and benefits in each case. You know, when we mix together questions on sin, cos, and tan, we're probably doing so because we want students to learn how to tell apart the different questions that require different formulas because, you know, students get mixed up between which formula to use. But, um, when we mix together completely different topics like trigonometry, averages, and fraction arithmetic, that's not for the same reason. You know, students don't students don't need to learn to tell the difference between averages and trigonometry. No one ever accidentally uses the cosine formula to calculate the mean. So the purpose <laughs> behind doing that is 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 different. It's it's probably more about memory and keeping topics kicking o- ticking over and um, retrieval practice and stuff like that. So even before we look at the research itself. The new, there's already nuances starting to show in uh, in the case of of what what interleaving is and what blocking is. And that doesn't diminish it in any kind of way. If anything, makes it more helpful because now we're not thinking about whether or not to interleave. That's not the only question. We're, we're thinking about well, what are we interleaving? What are we interleaving for? And what are we trying to achieve by mixing these particular things together? And and how do does mixing these things together achieve that? That's it's absolutely brilliant point, that Paul. And and just just two thoughts from this. The one one is, and you, you've kind of gone over this, but I, I when I was on the train home from uh, from research ed, and I was thinking about your session, and particularly this point, because I thought it was a really really powerful point about looking at these different worksheets and, and where do you draw the line. And I, I I came to the conclusion that there's probably in in practical secondary mathematics teaching terms there's probably no such thing as blocking because as as you've said if you have a if you have a, a worksheet on a given topic there's going to be some kind of mix-up going on there whether it's you know choosing as you say sine cos or tan or, or which which is the opposite do i multiply or divide and so on and so forth and I, I, I as we've myself and joe morgan have spoke about on this podcast we love your um 
sequences of, of blog posts where you take a deep dive into into a topic. And I, I really, really like your your Thank one you. on the parallelogram area of parallelogram. I thought it was absolutely fantastic, and it made me think that the only if if you ever get a if you design a worksheet that is a pure kind of blocked worksheet, where as you say, the only thing you change are arbitrary features, then all of a sudden you're not testing students knowledge of or an understanding of that concept at all it's just in in you to take your parallelogram case if your blocked worksheet is just a load of parallelograms with the base and the perpendicular height marked on there then all of a sudden you're not practicing area parallelogram you're just practicing multiplying two numbers together and to use your trig example if your blocked worksheet is all uh, calculate the opposite on a right angle triangle where you've got the hypotenuse then the entire worksheet just becomes an exercise in substitution and using your calculator all of a sudden the focus of students attention is no longer on the trigonometric ratio and so on so yeah i i really came away thinking from your talk that blocking does doesn't doesn't exist i, I don't think i've seen a blocked worksheet in the sense that it's used in in the research and and as you say i think it's a really really important point that, and it goes back to what we were talking about before, that unless you really dive into these studies, and you've got to go quite a few pages into the studies to the method section to see what worksheets are actually being used or what problems are actually being asked. You've got to skip over the headline abstract that says interleaving beats blocking and so on and see what's actually going on. That there's a danger that, as you say, you come away thinking, well, blocking's bad and blocking means that I don't use a trigonometry worksheet anymore. I've got to chuck in all this other stuff. And you can be kind of missing the whole point. So that that was one that was one point. And um, any response at all to that, Paul? And, and feel, please feel no pressure to. No, absolutely. I think um, probably the the place where maybe I have used quite pure blocky worksheets before, and it was probably very early in my career, um, were like those sort of website pages that, in a very rudimentary way, just provide like like fifty questions, kind of on the same thing like you know, automatically. I don't necessarily mean um, like, which some of them are really well done, but they get progressively harder, like um, was it a mass, a mass spot, you know, shout out to Yorkshire uh, for that one. But, um, but you know, there are some which aren't, aren't as sophisticated as that, and they just sort of randomly produce. I think like from example, my PGCE, I learned how to make, make um, like a changeable worksheet by using Excel, for example, where the numbers randomized. It's that kind of thing. But I think they're very few and far between. And a lot of people would recognize that a worksheet that doesn't get any more difficult as it goes and every question is pretty much the same is not a very good worksheet. Um, and um, I guess the interleaving research tells us that there is an alternative that is better than these ones. But you know, it's not the only alternative, but it's, uh, the, you know, the I think it tells us like more so about how, how bad those sorts of worksheets can be, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Than anything it's, else. Yeah. It's, yeah, absolutely. And again, it goes to this wider point that we're going to dive into it a little bit later on, but, but when do you, when do you start mixing things up? And I think the mistake I've been making for a long time, and it was really was your talk, Paul, that, that brought this home to me is it's not just this black and white blocking. And then you switch to interleaving. As you say, and this will come on to my second point now, there are these different purposes of interleaving. So if we're doing something like trig, 
all right, we'll block in the sense that we'll get perhaps students familiar, familiar with one ratio, we'll get them familiar with entering numbers into the calculator and so on. And then we'll start to interleave in terms of deciding which ratio it is. Then we'll start to interleave maybe in terms of how they rearrange the formula. And then we'll start to interleave by distinguishing between trig versus Pythagoras. And then we'll start to interleave by bringing in other different areas of mathematics in there, perhaps a bit of algebraic manipulation and so on. So it's it's not this right now we're blocking now we're interleaving it's this gradual kind of move through the different types of interleaving the different purposes of interleaving that i think i, th I think is what i'm kind of taking from 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 the research now and that that leads me to just my second point just reflection on what you were saying there so as you as as listeners may know i i'm quite interested in the notion of what i call intelligent practice using principles of variation theory to just vary certain things hold some stuff in variance and hopefully students notice the change and what impact it has on the outcome but in my initial discussions on this with with Anne watson we swapped quite a few emails and the point Anne was, well, one of the many useful points that Anne was making was that when I'm writing these sequences, I've got to, I've got to really think hard about what is the purpose of the variation? Why, why am I changing this one thing in this question? Hmm. And in the past, I'd, I'd not really thought hard about that. I was just, all right, I'll change this because it'll have this impact and then I'll change this and blah, 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 blah. But now I'm really careful and I think, okay, what, by changing this, what am I hoping the students will notice? What am I hoping that they'll take away from this? What, what questions am I hoping they'll ask next and so on? And whenever you were talking then about the purpose of, of interleaving and how the different ways we interleave have, have different, we want students to take different things from it, just, it really reminded me of that. And I guess interleaving variation, they're very related um, in that yeah. sense that, and it's true of all, of all activities and questions we give our students. What, what, what is the per Why are we asking this question? What's the purpose of it? What are we hoping students will get out of it? So, again, feel, feel free to comment or not, Paul, but it just, it just really rang true this. We're not just mixing things up for the sake of it, and all mixing things up is not the same. We've got to think, why are we doing it? What's the purpose? Absolutely. You know, the, the, the link between variation theory and interleaving uh, really shines through with some of the work from Cavallo and Goldstone, which I know we queued to talk about a bit later on. It's a bit like a Holmes and the Hammer kind of, you know, it's what's coming up <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> Keep listeners <laughs> engaged. Um, <laughs> I forgot what my point was now. Oh, but like, what you described there, though, is, is a bit of a reverse in thinking in that we're initially... Um, I would hear about some sort of research headline. Let's say, oh, we're talking about interleaving today, let's stay on point. And I'd think to myself, right, where can I use in, you know, input interleaving into the curriculum? Where mm. can I um, sort of insert it? Whereas what you described there is reversing thinking in that actually you're thinking more so about, well, what do I want to try and achieve in this particular moment? And then what can I do to achieve that? And, and you know, what you do might be interleaving, it, it, it might not be, but it's thinking about purpose first rather than strategy first yes absolutely absolutely well the um the next thing i want to talk about and the next thing i really took away from your uh, your, your talk paul was was why interleaving seems to be beneficial to students in terms of, of their kind of long-term learning and you talked about these explanatory mechanisms and this was stuff that i i was vaguely aware of but i really like the way you broke this down into into the three three categories so i wonder if it's possible if you could just take us through the three mechanisms i'll, I'll just say them now and then if you can just go through one at a time if that's okay sure. so the reason why interleaving might be might be a useful thing to do why it might aid learning uh practice retrieval attention at you i 
can never say this, Paul. Attenuation, attention, attenuation, and discriminative contrast. So can you take us through each of those, if that's okay? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, you know, like you, I I, I didn't really... um, It took me a while to get my head into this because while I was conducting my literature review, my supervisor in one of our meetings asked me to try and pinpoint the underlying mechanisms of interleaving. In other words, you know, what does interleaving do? And I don't think I understood him the first time he asked me this because I went away, read a lot of stuff, and I came back and I said, oh, right, I've got it. I think I've jotted down what interleaving does. It helps you learn to discriminate between categories, helps strengthen associations between category items and their category labels, and it helps improve memory. And he said, no, you've, you've listed the outcomes of interleaving, not necessarily the mechanisms. So by mechanisms, I think what he meant was precisely what is it that is happening while a participant is interleaving that potentially leads to these things, these outcomes happening. You know, in, in other words, I guess, how do researchers explain the interleaving effects that they find? Um, and there's, there's quite a few explanatory mechanisms uh, discussed in the discussion sections of, of research articles, but those three you mentioned there seem to be the most common ones that I referred to. So if we start with the uh, retrieval practice mechanism, so if you imagine, for example, uh, me giving you a work, or me giving a student a worksheet, uh, not teaching you to do maths, you're pretty good at it. Me teaching a student to a work, giving a student a worksheet with ten consecutive questions on it that are all area triangle questions. Well, the student only really needs to recall the formula once at the start, and then they can just repeat the, it for the other nine questions while they keep the formula fresh in their minds. Now, imagine that instead we um, we put some kind of distraction in between each area triangle question. You know, and that distraction could be areas of other shapes. It could be questions on different aspects of mathematics, or it could be something unrelated, like watching an episode of The Simpsons or Twin Peaks, or maybe <laughs> just um, days pass between each question, you know, uh, like, like what happens with, with spacing, for example. Now, each time a student attempts an area of a triangle question, they, they have to think to themselves, oh, what's that formula again? And, you know, Bjork describes this as um, students having to reload memories, which I think is a really nice uh, way of phrasing it. But ultimately, the student gets more practice in retrieving the formula, um, which arguably strengthens the retrieval, um, the, you know, the retrieval strength, I think it is. Um, so by this explanation, uh, interleaving facilitates that distraction by spacing repetitions apart and, and diverting attention away from uh, the the you know the, the area triangle questions. Like arguably, this this is one um, explanatory mechanism of interleaving, um, but we don't necessarily need to interleave to engage that mechanism. So you know by that I mean um, we could achieve this with a single category by just increasing the spacing without necessarily mixing other things in with it. Practically speaking, we do need to put something in between the spaces. Um, so we might as well do some maths in that time. But it could be <laughs> argued that the the interleaving effects where this mechanism is the main driver are more so cases of space and several things at once um, rather than being caused by the actual mixing of those two things or three or however many things together. And the reason why I think this is um, important to know is that if you are trying to sort of create a practice retrieval effect, then mixed topic assignments is one way of doing it, but it's not the only way of doing it. You know, so it's like, say, for example, um, I've just finished a series of lessons on areas of circles. There's so a few things I could do as a teacher. I could, um, to introduce kind of space repetitions, I could 
wait a few weeks and do a starter activity with a bunch of circle questions or maybe give it a few more weeks and give a homework on circles or you know maybe a month or so later give a short test about circles i'm not arguing that any of these things are better than regular mixed topic assignments so just i'm just saying like you know the, the possibilities and also in mathematics there are many things that get repeated frequently um over time quite naturally you know especially within a good scheme of work and i think i'm mentioned this and what's mentioned this in her last podcast you know with a very good well-designed scheme of work things naturally come up and 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 again and again so for example in, in the scheme where you, we use the white rose scheme and uh, i think you know kids do circles initially in year eight to start year eight but then circles come up again about six months later when they do volumes of cylinders and the next year they learn how to calculate the areas of sectors of circles and then the year after that they do volume and surface area cones. And then the year after that, they do areas of segments. But um, so while that does you know, recur quite naturally, I guess one practical takeaway I've taken out about this is um, I thought about, you know, there are some topics that don't recur quite as often um, as, as naturally as, as circles and fractions and stuff like that, you know, like histograms and constructions and probability trees, um, the stuff we don't necessarily like, um, I guess. But, you know, for stuff like that, if they're not naturally recurring in the curriculum quite as much as as things like circles and fractions, then maybe as teachers who want to find and use um, some strategies to artificially introduce space repetition or retrieval practice such as space starters or mixed assignments and things like that but um yeah it's it's, it's definitely more of like a like a, like a practice and retrieval um sort of effect there um with with that first mechanism again you, you you've alluded to um spacing there paul i wonder if it's worth just just briefly touching upon this now it's it's, mm. it's often said that if you interleave, you get the benefits of spacing kind of automatically um, because by definition, you're, you're leaving a gap, either a gap in time or a gap which is filled by another topic in between and so on. And um, do, do, do you buy into that? Is that, is that a fair comment? And yeah. um, is it also true that, that spacing, that the practice retrieval mechanism is kind of the sole mechanism that the spacing effect works through or is, is there something else going on there? Um, well, I think, you know, I'm agree, but, you know, interleaving and spacing are quite intrinsically linked, you know, both from a practical sense in that if you do uh, interleave, you are spacing the categories further apart. Um, but, and also from a research sense in that um, some studies that aim to, to look at spacing use interleaving as a way to space things apart. I think the Cornell Bjork, sorry, uh, one did that. And then um, like, there's other studies where it aims to look at interleaving, but there's a quite a, a big sort of, um, not sorry, confounding factor of space and because it's it's deliberate. It's, you know, it's, it's it's intrinsic in there, but like the, the Aurora one, which we'll talk about later, does that as well. Um, but you know, I, I guess the, the research behind space interleaving do focus on slightly different things. You know, interleaving is very much about when you have multiple categories and what effect, you know, contrasting one with the other does or mix them together does. Whereas um, from what I don't, I, I've, I've stopped um, reading about space and when I kind of narrowed it down a little bit to, to interleaving because you've got to narrow your, your research down uh, a bit. But uh, space intends to focus on the amount of time that occurs between re, uh, items, well, either the same thing repeating or items from the same category reoccurring. And you could do that with with a single category, not necessarily multiple ones. So I guess the key difference between them is 
interleaving research tends to focus on what effect the order of multiple topics has, whereas space and research, from what I understand, tends to focus on what effect the time between items from the same category uh, has, really. Got it. Got it. Fantastic. Well, let's talk about the second then of these uh, explanatory mechanisms, <laughs> the one I can't say. I'm, I'm going to let you say it, Paul, because this will be embarrassing to mess it up again. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, like, when you're writing a, a thesis, you just type everything, you don't say it. Uh, <laughs> So the, the second one is that uh, interleaving can help with um, uh, reducing attention attenuation. And uh, what that, that can take a few different forms. So if we um, take, for example, that worksheet we talked about with 10 area of triangle questions on it, if those questions are all pretty similar, then a student will probably do a few get into the swing of it and then repeat the pr same process again and again for the remaining questions. I think you refer to it in a couple of your books as like kids going into autopilot and not thinking quite as hard as they did. But essentially, they don't have to um, exert as much mental effort into the second half of the worksheet as they did in the first half. But however, you know, if, if um, a student instead has a assignment that contains a mixture of questions on different topics, then it's harder to go into that autopilot because every question requires them to think about something different. So arguably, um, they, you know, they need to pay an equal amount of attention and mental effort throughout the entire worksheet because one question asks them to do one thing and then you have to do something completely different for another and you have to think again about what they're doing in that one. So you know, one suggestion about interleaved assignments is that they do sustain uh, attention and, and mental effort uh, more than a blocked assignment does. But one reason why I think this is helpful to know is that um, mixed assignments aren't the only way of stopping students going to autopilot. You know, that's what you're trying to do. That's the purpose behind uh, or, or the thing you're trying to achieve. And you could use a mixed assignment, um, but it, it, there are alternatives. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that um, the blocked assignments in the interleave studies sometimes, like like um, Rora 2019, tend to contain very repetitive questions that are nearly identical, you know, apart from the numbers. Like an alternative approach could be to have 10 area triangle questions that continuously get harder and harder and harder. Um, and, you know, each question throws in an additional complexity you know, or something actually to think about in terms of the orientation or an extra, you know, uh, measurement given or different triangles, joints, all sorts of things like that. Um, arguably, if the worksheet's doing that, then the students are kept off autopilot by every question given something extra to think about or a little bit more complexity than, than the previous one. And I'd probably argue that most well-designed worksheets do that. Um, and, you know, that, that's, that, like you said earlier, that super repetitive sort of worksheet is pretty rare um, or at least pretty shoddy. Um, but the uh, but, but autopilot isn't the only way to think about attention attenuation. Um, like an, another way it's described uh, in experiments where participants are trying to learn to classify items into different categories by viewing a series of exemplars. You know, for example, um, uh, looking at paintings and trying to decide which artists they belong to. If you see a bunch of paintings in a in a, a blocked way, it means that the artist's name stays the same every single time, and the image changes. So you don't necessarily need to pay attention to both items, um, you know, name and, and image. You can just, you know, mostly focus on the image and be rest, rest assured that the artist's name is the same. But if you are interleaving and you're constantly switching every time, you do need to pay attention to both the name and the picture every single time. So arguably that 
um, helps helps strengthen the associations between the two because uh, you, you're paying you know, closer attention to, to, to all all the information on the screen. Um, and then finally, this, this attention attenuation kind of reduction idea could also be triggered by um, by by the spacing that is intrinsic to mixed assignments. Like you said, you know, by by spacing out eight questions over time rather than having them in one assignment, students have to think a bit harder about how to recall um, what they do, but. That, that could just be a, a rewording of the practice retrieval mechanism um, and again, done with a single category. So that's kind of, um, it's a bit of a blurry one and a bit of a vague one, but uh, that's that's kind of one thing that's going on when you're interleaving. It's, it's really interesting, this board, because when, I, when I've talked about interleaving in the past and I've, I've tried to get my head around why it works, my, I, I've, I've got my head around the kind of retrieval bits of it. That, that seems to make sense. And I, I, like you, I like Bjork's notion of reloading. I think that's quite a nice mm. way of thinking about it. But then my other mechanism, I think, has been a bit of a... A, a blurring of these two this the attention actually oh god I thought, <laughs> you know what i thought i had it then i was kind of mouthing it every time you said it the attention one and then this discriminative contrast I, and it was only when you kind of broke them down into into the three instead of the two that i had in my mind that i, I started to see a bit of a difference between but i've i've got a few follow-up questions but what mm-hmm. i'm going to do i'm going to wait till you've gone through the third one if that's okay because there's a chance it may answer a couple of these questions could you take us through this discriminative contrast yeah so the discriminative contrast mechanism is um probably the most prolific one in interleaving studies that uh, focus particularly on category learning that is um that interleaving facilitates discriminative contrast between different categories um so for example uh, say you are viewing um you're trying to you've got like four categories and you've got loads of items belonging to these four categories, like you know, paintings and artists, for example. Uh, if you are viewing a series of exemplars in a blocked arrangement, then there are only a few occasions where you can make an immediate comparison between one category and another. And it's in those moments where you switch between one block and another block. Mm. Whereas if you are viewing a series of exemplars in, in an interleaved arrangement, then there are loads of moments where you can make uh, contrast between one category and another because you're constantly switching between uh, categories where every single exemplar that appears on the screen or, or, or however it's presented to you. So you have more opportunities to spot the difference between them and pick out the discriminative features. So in this mechanism, uh, interleaving kind of it creates juxtaposition between the different categories, which can help draw attention and highlight those discriminative features. Um, now, I, whereas the practice retrieval mechanism is probably more of a spacing thing than a mixing things, arguably because you can do it with, one, with just one category, the discriminative contrast mechanism does require multiple categories uh, because they are being used to juxtapose with each other. And studies that discuss this discriminative contrast mechanism in their articles are often ones where participants are trying to learn to tell things apart and classify them into categories so this does tend to be a more closely uh, and a, a more frequently discussed mechanism uh, for mixing stuff rather than rather than just spacing, and that's um, and that's uh, that's why uh, I, I, I'm exploring that a lot more in my own research. And uh, there's a lot more who wants to unpack about the discriminative contrast mechanism um, by looking at, at uh, studies like like the painting things, um, which which, uh, which which really sort of pick out little tiny nuances about it. 
Well, if it's okay, I wouldn't mm. mind just diving a little bit deeper into this discriminative contrast now. But if I start asking something that you'd rather talk about it a little later after we've talked about some of the specific research, please, please say, Paul, and we'll, we'll just kind of shift it yeah. around a bit. But um, what, what I'm interested in here is if we go back to your, your earlier point about the different types of interleaving and the different purposes. So if we have, let's say, a mixed topic assignment, whether it's a homework or a low stakes quiz, and there's, let's say, there's 10 questions. Question one's on fractions. Question two's a completely unrelated question on circle theorems. Question three's an unrelated question on a probability tree diagram, something like that. What, what mechanism's running through that worksheet Paul is is that practice retrieval or or is there a bit is there a bit of that attention attenuation going on there what, what, what would you say for that one I probably well it'd be more of a guess because I haven't necessarily um done you know done that research on it but I think in studies that do tend to do that kind of thing the the um they tend to reference practice retrieval more so than discriminative contrast because by doing a worksheet like that the students aren't trying to learn to tell the difference between probability trees and histograms. That's kind of not what's going on. Yes. It's not a case of um, can you tell which of, you know, how these are different from each other and making those comparisons. It's so it's probably a bit more of a um, of a uh, retrieval practice kind of idea and and sort of yeah. Um, doing one every now and again rather than doing them all at once uh, sort of effect. Whereas I think the other example I gave early was um, a worksheet on trigonometry. We got sin, cos, and tan. That is something where you do want students to tell a difference between yes. uh, what, what to use. And like same with your same surface, different depth kind mm -hmm. of uh, stuff as well. Um, so it's, that's probably a bit more about comparing these things that look quite similar and trying to decide, well, you know, what is it about this question that makes it a sin question? And what is it that makes it a cos question and, and tan and, and so on, really? Yeah, I think I think that that's that's the point I'm getting at here. That that I think I, I've mixed this up. I, I think I, the more I think about this, the more I've got this completely the wrong way around. And I wonder if this is true of of of, of listeners tuning into this here. That if you take that first example that I talked about there, this ten question quiz that's that's essentially random topics, but crucially unrelated questions. Hmm. That is that would kind of fit many people's idea of interleaving, but perhaps that's more a spacing thing because again, you can get you, the purpose of that worksheet isn't, as you say, to discriminate between the categories, to think hard about the relationships and so on. Whereas if you take a well-designed worksheet, or you mentioned my SSDD things, and again, for, for listeners who aren't familiar with that, the idea there is you take four. I, I always choose four four questions. <laughs> where on the surface they look quite similar to each other. Maybe they've got a common image, a common context, a common set of numbers, something like that. But the deep structures are different. Perhaps they're four different areas of the curriculum. So maybe there are four right-angled triangles in there. They're all the same right-angled triangles, but one of the questions is Pythagoras, one of its area, one of its something to do with angles, one of its forming and solving equations. Or if you take perhaps instead of four different areas of the curriculum, maybe you take a deep dive into one. So a ratio is often an example I use mm. where the, the common surface feature is the ratio, but sometimes students are sharing uh, the total. Sometimes they're given one part and trying to work out the total and, and so on and so forth. That for me feels like the more and powerful is the wrong word, but I don't know quite what the word is, but that feels to me the, the kind of stronger form of, of interleaving because there students are having to think 
really hard about the differences, the similarities, and so on. But on the face of it, you could look at that and say, ah, well, that's blocking because it's, it's all the same topic. So it, it almost seems to me that I've got this the wrong way around, that the, 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 what I previously would have classed as interleaving may actually be more spacing. And what I possibly in the past would have classed as blocking, if it's a well-designed sequence of questions, then maybe it's actually interleaving does that make sense at all paul yeah we can get you know and you can get really bogged down with trying to figure out what things are called yes. and are not called and maybe the names don't really make that much difference and i'm not i'm not suggesting that one form interleaving is better than the other it's just more so about the purpose and and you know think about what is he trying to achieve and do something that does that and who cares what it's called i i agree i agree that the names don't matter but i think if we go back to what we said earlier on the names do matter if we're reading the headlines of, yeah, that's, yeah. of research papers and, and dismissing things because we've given it the wrong label. Or I've seen this in the past in schools as well, where perhaps observations are happening um, and mm. one of the departmental policies is we're going to interleave and we're not going to block, you know, and all of a sudden, ah, well, I'm looking at this worksheet, it's all the same topic, so you, that isn't the right one, chuck that out and, and so on. So I agree with you that, you know, a good sequence of questions is a good sequence of questions, but sometimes the labels matter, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, I think it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a wider, kind of a slightly wider point, I guess, um, about, um, like, you, you, you need to know what the semantics are to understand, interpret the research, but sometimes it can be a bit distracting, you know. Mm. So, like, for example, I thought of a, like an alternative um, fail um, I mentioned um, variation theory or something I was particularly interested in before I started doing a PhD. And if I, could, if I could go back in time and introduce that to my department again, I probably wouldn't mention the word inter, uh, variation. I can't say anything else other than interleaving now because it's four years. <laughs> just I probably wouldn't mention the word variation theory uh, until very late on. Um, and uh, Because what ended up happening was um, people seem to get really bogged down for saying, well, if I do this, is this variation? If yes. I do that, that's variation. And then... Yes. Um, because the word sort of conjures up different images. I remember, and it wasn't just in my school, I think this is other schools, because I went, visited um, quite a few schools back then because I was working with the Maths Hub. And I remember one head teacher um, saying, oh, we've started using um, numeracy ninjas instead of time table rock stars because it came, contains more variation, and that's what we're really focusing on. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like both those resources, um, by the way. But the... Um, but I think they were, they were conflating variation with just variety. Yes. And there's another head teacher who said, oh, we don't say differentiation anymore. We say variation. I thought, oh, my word, where's that come from? <laughs> so I think if I was to do it again, uh, rather than starting by saying, this is what variation theory is, let's define it and then look at examples, I'd probably like, start off with like an example of sequence of questions like... Uh, Oh, those ones by, by Marton, which says, like, there's nine litres of apple juice and you got, like, uh, cups for three litres and then the cups for one litre and cups for 0.3 litres. And you've got to figure out how many cups you can have. And it's the same words in every single question. I'll probably start something like that and say, mm. oh, isn't this, a se- isn't, isn't this an interesting sequence of questions? Why do you think the author has yes. written it like this? You know, why do you, what effect do you think this has on the students? And, like, look at examples like that and, put, and start with purposes. Then maybe later on say... Oh, you know, all these ideas we've been looking at, if you want to read more about it, um, it comes under this umbrella of variation theory and you can, you can Google it or, or, you know, and Carter's gone. So Google or Bing, um, I guess. <laughs> and maybe, maybe that's kind of the, the way I might, I might have go back and introduce something like interleaving to the department now if I could um, by sort of looking at, you know, what happens when we mix 
these sorts of questions together? What happens when we mix these sorts of questions together? Right. If you want to find out more about it, there's, there's research on something called interleaving perhaps. Yeah, that's really, really interesting, Paul. Really good point. Sorry, um, big tangent. Sorry. <laughs> no, good time. We, this is what this podcast is built on. Uh, big tangent, <laughs> so I like it. Um, again, just, just two more things before we move on to the research. And again, feel free to swerve these if it's either irrelevant or we're coming to it later. But mm. two, other, two other terms that often get kind of banded around. And I wonder in your mind where, if anywhere, these fit in. Um, so I, I use this one a lot, this notion of method selection. This idea that it's really important for students, again, to be thrown off autopilot, to be given a question and to think, okay, which which area of mathematics is this? Which 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 tool in my toolkit am I going to use to try and solve this? That feels to me that that it's it's part of some of these explanatory mechanisms. Would that fit nicely in anywhere, do you think, Paul? Yeah, I've, I'm not quite sure exactly how that would sit or where it sits. So in one hand, method selection could be um, a bit of a discriminative contrast thing is when like, you're likely to get your methods mixed up, um, trying to figure out, well, you know, these are my four methods, which one am I going to apply mm. to which? Or it could be a bit of more of a, a retrieval thing in that if you see a random topic in the wild somewhere, not in the wild, you know, just like yes. out of context of the lesson, uh, trying to think back about, oh, yeah, what's what's the yes. formula again? So um, I'm not quite sure it's a, it's a mechanism of itself, but more of a kind of a, a, like an outcome of either one or two or combined mechanisms together. Yeah, it's also one to think about, to be honest with you. I've got a year to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other one that, that often gets used, uh, I first heard this term from, from Will Emney, this notion of interweaving. And, and mm. this, this is particularly relevant to, to maths teachers, this notion of, let's say, for example, you're doing a unit of work on uh, algebraic expressions or something, and you weave in some questions involving fractions, involving decimals, involving negatives, and so on. Did does, does, does that fit into one of the, the, the mechanisms or is, is that something different? Well, you know what? Initially, that's what I thought interleaving was before I listened to the, the sort of the Bjorks podcast. Yes. I had heard the term interleaving and I think um, myself and you know, quite a few people thought it was like when you have fractions around an area trying mm. a rectangle question or something like that. Um, but I was so, so surprised that when I started reading the interleaving research, it doesn't really talk about that kind of no. thing. Um, it's always about sort of things being very separate and whether which order you put them in. Um, so I'm not quite sure how that fits in with interleaving research. I guess if I was to put it anywhere, if you've got um, uh, like area questions with fractions on the lengths, then maybe it's uh, like you're tapping into a bit of retrieval and that you, you know, you're getting students to think again about how do you, how do you um, add fractions or multiply them, keeping that ticking over uh, perhaps. It's, it's probably a bit of like a retrieval thing in a more implicit sense than um, explicitly just you know, given sort of mixed uh, test or assignments where there's an area triangle question or whatever sort of thing. I I'm, I'm still thinking about that one, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's, 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 it's an in interesting one. Well, okay, let, let's dive into some of the research then, Paul, if that's okay. Um, and once again, I, I, I thought your talk at Research Ed was really well structured. Um, you broke the research into two things, which I had never heard of at all, uh, serial practice assignments and inductive category learning. 
Um, can you take us through uh, each of those, if that's okay? Perhaps mentioning one or two of the, the research studies and, and also some of the nuances in the studies, because I thought that was really interesting. You, you, you took a dive, d- deeper dive, and not just kind of clinging onto the headline. So is, is that all right, Paul, just to, fit, to take us through those ones? Absolutely. Um, those two descriptions are, are kind of things I just a bit made up just to, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds uh, just, good. Just to think about them in some sort of way. Um, so the, the serial practice assignment style research um, well, I should say interleaving has been researched in lots of designs. I just these two seem to be um, more common than others and tend to get referred to quite a lot. So this serial practice assignment style one, um, that tends to be studies where are done mostly with you know uh, high school students, usually mathematics as well. And what will happen is um, students will receive a series of assignments that are either blocked or interleave and then have a have a test afterwards. So, for example, I think the biggest one, uh, and it's, it's it's an incredible piece of research for its size and um, it, it, and you know what it does and and what it finds, is the the one from Rora from two thousand nineteen, um, which is a randomised control trial um, of interleaving and mathematics. I think it's called. Um, and I can't remember the sample size is huge. I think it's like a thousand students or close to it anyway. But the what they, what happened in that one was the. Students were assigned into two groups, uh, either interleaved or blocked. And there were four topics in particular that were focused on um, for the test. One was equations of a straight line. So if you see a graph, write down the equation of a straight line. It's in the form y equals kx. So it goes for the origin. Uh, the second was solving inequality. The third was simplifying an expression that contains brackets, I think. And then the uh, fourth was uh, questions involving area of a circle. So I think you have to calculate the radius when they're given the area of the circle or something like that. Um, and um, these are the, there were eight questions for each of these topics during the practice phase, which lasted about 103 days-ish. Um, and for the students in the block group, they would receive on assignments two, four, six, and eight, a blocked assignment where, they receive, where all eight questions in that assignment will be on one of those topics. Um, Whereas the interleaved uh, group, they had um, one of each of those topics in every assignment. And then the rest of the questions were all sort of filler questions. And then after they did all eight assignments um, on, on those four topics plus the filler questions, they had a, a review where they had one more question of each of those. And then they had a test where they had, I think, um, four questions on each, on each topic area. And the interleaved group performed significantly better than the block group um, in, in that one there. So that's kind of the headline um, from that research, and it's it's a huge, huge randomized control trial for. I, I, I've I've tried to do some RCTs in in schools, and they are just a logistical nightmare. So I'm <laughs> mega impressed with with this um, how this research went. But you know, if we go think back to kind of some of the nuances then of, of something like this, um, and we can think about those um, mechanisms from earlier. You know, which of those three mechanisms might explain why interleaving uh, did well in this particular assignment? Um, it's probably not the discriminative contrast mechanism because students aren't trying to learn how to distinguish between inequalities and graphs and, uh, and circles. Um, so it's probably not so much the case of uh, by mixing these things together, by having the, uh, the equation of a line question before the circle question, the circle question becomes better. I don't think it's necessarily uh, that. What seems probably more more likely from at least um, uh, sort of a, t- a teacher point of view, I guess, is maybe the reason why students did 
better in the interleave group than the block group for, say, the equation of line questions is because rather than doing all eight questions in one go in one assignment, they did one question every every assignment for over the space of 103 days. Um, and I think I sort of visualized that a little bit by thinking, well, you know, if the, I think look, looking at the data from that study, um, interleaving a group scored 58% on average for the equation aligned questions compared to the blocking ones, it was 20%. If the interleaved um, assignments were only equation aligned questions and you know, removed all those other topics, would we expect that 58% to go down quite a bit? Uh, and if we did, we, we were saying, well, the other topics, the, the fact they're there Im- improves the equation lines uh, learning. But, or if, if, if not, we're saying, well, actually, it's, it's probably more of a case of we are spacing several things at once more than anything else. So I tend to put it down to a bit more of a spacing thing than a than an interleaving thing, which is which is great because you, you know what the what the effect is, which means that if you want to re- you know, replicate that effect, you you know what you're doing with it um, more than anything else. And I, I, I do I really feel that like knowing the reason behind uh, a result is 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 more beneficial than, than results and, and doesn't diminish it because actually it means that you can you can replicate it in a or or, or be at least influenced by it in a in a in, a, in an appropriate way. It's it's a it's a great study that one. It's um, yeah. it's it's one that I'm a big fan of. It's nice and colourful as well. The mm. uh, the the, the, the uh, results and stuff. I, I often use that one. I'd say one thing I'm a bit puzzled with with this study. Um, and again, maybe maybe you could shed some light on, or maybe it puzzles you too. This part. Were, were all the kids? Were they all taught the topics at the same time? Is there any indication of the, the teaching that that went on went on here? Because I'm I'm just thinking. I think about that block group. Mm. And there, like the fourth topic, whatever it was, like what's the gap between them being taught that topic and then them practicing it? Because if they're all taught at the same time, the interleaving group are also kind of getting chance to practice that fourth topic before the block group, if that makes sense, because they're getting exposure to it in all the assignments. Did you manage to get your head around what was exactly going on with the teaching? Yeah, I think in my latest reread, I, um, I spotted that, but I'm off, off memory. I'm trying to, um, so I, I'm, I might have it right. If not, please like, <laughs> encourage anyone to go back and, and read it again. But um, I think for the blocked assignment uh, group, they got um, shown how to do the equation of a line uh, um, on the day that they then set that assignment. Uh, and then so on with inequalities and uh, simplifying expressions. Mm. Whereas the interleave group, I think they were shown all four things in before doing assignment one, um, and then they were, uh, and then they got these sort of assignments. Ah, okay, of, I, I think so. I have to double check that again. Um, but there's, you know, there's, there is. I, I don't think they did them in test conditions. I think they could get help from the teacher yes. as well. And there was. Um, I'm not quite sure. Um, I have to really reread it again because um, every time you read it, you pick up more stuff, but there's still yeah. more questions about what effect feedback has yes. uh, in something like this. Because if you do all your equation or line questions in one go, um, then if you get feedback afterwards, you can't use it in any kind of way because you don't get any more questions like that until a test. Yes. Whereas um, if they are spaced out over time, it means that you can um, you get feedback and then the next, le- next yeah. time you, you act on it. So there might... Whether that's a part of the research or not, I don't know. But it is it is a um, a practical thing to consider um, about about this particular type of interleaving or or space and several things at once kind of idea. Absolutely. So so is that in terms of your kind of categories of research? Would that be serial practice assignment? Is that right, Paul? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and because 
I, 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 do, I discussed this a little bit in my th- thesis literature review, um, uh, sort of because because it, it is such a, a big, well referenced uh, study, and um, but because um, I can't do research myself, that straddles both types of research. I had to pick one or the other, and I, I kind of felt this was a bit more space and influence than, than the other one I'm going to talk about. So um, I don't focus on it quite so much, really. Uh, my, my, my own research tends to be a bit more like the Cornell and Bjork stuff, which we're going to talk about in a bit. Got it. Okay, so let's turn our attention then to this second category. Is this the inductive category learning part? Yes, yes. So um, it dis- distinguishes itself from the serial practice assignment one in a few ways. One is... Um, whereas that practice assignment stuff is a case of students practicing something that they've learned in the past. Um, this one, inductive category learning, it tends to be about um, uh, learning something new through interleaving, uh, which is a, a little bit of a different slant. And also the, the, the practice assignment one tends to be over a long space of time, um, like a few months or so, where these inductive category learning studies tend to be done within a single day. Usually the study phase is about five minutes long. Uh, so there's very, very little spacing going on. Not not none, but very, very little spacing. So what these ones look like, and examples of this are Cornell and Bjork, uh, Cornell and, and other friends like Pashler and um, and uh, Zukipli and Bert, I think, sort of one as well. Um, and Kangum, Eglinton and Kang is an interesting one too, um, if, if, which is a bit more close to mathematics. Science. But just, just really sorry to interrupt, Paul. Do you think you'd be able to send us a link so I can link in the show notes to these studies? Because I'm sure listeners will be loving to dive into, yeah. dive into these. Well, I think I, I sent you the um, a copy of the PowerPoint from my presentation, and on the uh, before now, and on the last page slides, oh, I've got yes. my references in there. So amazing! Feel free to to snip out as many of those as you like. The Good. issue is quite a lot of them are behind paywalls, yes. or you need to be part of the university to access them. But they are really, really, really interesting to read. Perfect. Um, but, Sorry for interrupting you, mate. No, that's fine. These um, sorts of studies, the way they, they kind of work is, um, I'm, I'm speaking very broadly now, is that a student will sit uh, at a computer screen. And the task that they're trying to do is learn how to categorize um, items into different categories. Um, That's what they're trying to learn. So the most common one is uh, paintings and trying to classify them into uh, which artists painted it. And that's what Cornell and Bjork do in 2008. And what will happen is they'll uh, sit at a computer screen. A series of images will appear on the screen for around five seconds at a time, slightly different in some studies, uh, and the name of the artist will be underneath or above or somewhere, so they can see them both. And they'll keep switching between different images. And in some cases, um, the images will be blocked according to artist, and some of them will be interleaved, so they're constantly chopping and changing between artists. So that'll last for about five minutes-ish. And then there might be a quick distracted task where they're counting backwards um, in threes from a number just to take the mind off it briefly uh, but then they'll do a test where they see some images um sometimes it's the ones they've seen before sometimes it's novel ones um and they have to guess um or figure out who they think painted it out of the, the painters that they've seen and usually in these studies the interleave group does significantly better than the uh, block group or uh, if it's done like a, as like a within participant kind of thing the um the students themselves will do better on the interleave ones than they did on the blocked ones so that's kind of the headline for these ones. It's powerful that though, isn't it? Hey, that mm. again, because what's what I think, and I think this is what kind of seduced me into the world of interleaving. This notion that 
the kids are being shown the same thing. There's no, it's not like they're getting any extra teaching. It's not like there's any extra materials needing being produced or anything. It's, it simply seems to be down to the ordering. And if it's something that's relatively low cost and easy to implement, that can have a powerful effect. Like why, why wouldn't we do it? This is certainly the kind of research that, that, that first really interested me in, in interleaving. Well, was it the same for you? Yeah, absolutely. Like anything where you can sort of put in the same amount of time mm. um, and just changing the order uh, to, to improve something is, is just really appealing. Because let's face it, we, we all want the best for our students. And if you find that something is, is good, you want to you use it as much as you can, really. And uh, I find the thing that annoyed me, though, as I'm reading this, that they were obsessed with paintings. I read about five <laughs> or six studies where it's bloody paintings and artists, left, right and centre. Are you aware of any attempt to do this in the world of mathematics or is this what, what you're, you yourself are interested in? Well, the, the paintings one is, is um, particularly interesting because... Um, uh, the I think you know when when they do because no study necessarily stands alone in isolation. Someone will do something, will find a bit of an effect, and then someone else will come along and go, okay, well, what happens if we take the same study mm. and uh, you know adjust this to test something else out? So I think that's why there's a lot of ones with paintings, but I don't know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the researchers uh, really. But it is an interesting point. Um, there are some. I'll come back to the mathematical bit in a minute. But the, the interesting point about these um, or one of them about these painting studies is. Um, so one of the nuances, I guess, uh, that a lot of the um, the student, the participants are trying to learn to do something very, very specific. They're, they're trying to learn to categorize stuff. And the things that they are categorizing in many of them are images. So paintings is a, is a common one. Um, butterflies and birds are other ones that have been used as well. Um, so that's one thing to bear in mind. Now, there have been studies that aren't images, which I'll, I'll, I'll come back to in a minute, but a lot of them are. Um, and a lot of the images tend to be um, belong to ill-defined categories, which is a really weird <laughs> a nuance thing to think about. But if you imagine, for example, um, you're from near Manchester, you, you know Lowry uh, oh, and his yeah. paintings. Like, if I showed you a Lowry painting, um, I didn't say it was a Lowry. You'd probably recognize it is because it contains a lot of uh, his usual typical features like an industrial backdrop and uh, slouchy people sort of walking, uh, you know, the matchstick men sort of thing, uh, walking left to right. But just because it contains those features doesn't guarantee it's a Lowry. Mm. You can have other artists do the same things. And there's a wonderful picture by Lowry where it's, it's a painting of himself and that doesn't contain any of those um, features. So the way you, you, you classify things like paintings is by looking for lots of clues that are typical usually and mm. correlating those clues to come up with a best guess, which is not necessarily the way that you categorize images in mathematics. They, they tend to be a lot more well-defined. You know, triangles have three sides. If it doesn't have three sides, it's not a triangle. Mm. Um, so the thought process behind how you categorize and learn to categorize stuff like paintings and, and birds and what have you might be different. I'm not saying it is, but it might be different to the way you uh, learn to categorize uh, stuff like triangles and parallelograms. In terms of mathematics, there have been a couple in that, um, the, for example, uh, Eglinton and Kang, they do the one with images of chemical compounds. Um, and that's one's really interesting because they also uh, try to highlight discriminative features on the in the diagrams as well to see if it draws more attention and whether it um, either diminishes or increases the interleaving effect. Uh, they are hit by a few in, uh, ceiling effects, I think, I think from what I remember from that one. Uh, but that's an interesting one because it's, it's probably the closest one to mathematics in terms of pictures. 
And then I think uh, Zoo Kipley and Bert, uh, I think it is, and then uh, maybe Jan and, and Sana, they do uh, ones of textual stuff. I think the Jan and Sana one is um, about statistical tests, like uh, oh, it's been years since I've level stats. You know how much I hate stats. Um, <laughs> like the, the cross score ball list test. And all that. You know, reading context and trying to decide well, which statistical test nice. would you use. Um, they, they, they've done something like that from what from what I remember. So there have, have been a few, uh, which are non-pictures and non-mathematical, but it's an interesting point about the paintings and how prolific they are. And does it seem to be quite robust in terms of the findings that, that the, the the interleaved group seems to perform better? Does that seem to be fairly consistent? Yeah, well, I think pretty much all the ones I referenced um, uh, earlier, that that's the case, the interleaved group tends to be, you know, it, it, it performs a bit significantly better than the block group. Um, which is which is the, like the you know the headline and is is the um, is the really interesting thing. But I think what's more interesting is is the reason why uh, they say those effects are there uh, and precisely what is happening while the students are interleaving. And it kind of goes back to that discussion about uh, mechanisms again um, and, and what is it that takes the effect. Because I think in these ones, it's not so much practice retrieval, um, because the um, it's it's in such a, a short space of time, and they're not asked to sort of. Um, you know, re regurgitate a painting they've seen before. It's it's the more just like look, looking at. Well, if you look at this painting, you know, does, what what does it look a bit more? I guess there's a bit of memory in that. But I think whether it's been looked into a tiny bit by, for example, Kang and Pashler in 2012. They looked to see, well, is this just spacing, but on like a small scale, or is it more about discriminative contrast? So what they did was they um, they had a group where they interleave consecutively. And you had three different versions of blocking. One was like blocked consecutively. One was, and this is the most interesting one, they blocked, but they put spaces in between so that the average amount of time between the same item recurring from the same category was the same as the interleave group. So, and the argument there was, well, if, if it's just spacing through interleaving again, like it is like, for example, the Aurora ones, um, arguably the block group where the items are spaced apart will perform just as well as the interleave yes. group. But it didn't. The interleave group performed better than all the other three blocking ones. And that was the only group where you were constantly switching between one item and other. Then the even more interesting one I found was, um, not sure how to pronounce it, uh, I think it's Burnborn and, and Friends. They had three different versions of interleaving. They had uh, interleaving consecutively between, um, I think that was the Butterflies one, I think. Um, and the one where the interleave um, a bunch um, one from each category, have a space, have a mixture of one from each category, have a space, and so on. And then the third one was the interleave, uh, but they have a space between every exemplar. And I guess the idea there is if spacing is the um, is, is the main mechanism or the main sort of driver behind these results, then you would expect increasing the spacing to have uh, to increase the results. But that third group um perform significantly worse um than the other two groups and the argument there was by putting spacing in between each exemplar we are disrupting the juxtaposition between the two categories uh, so that actually what's probably more likely to be the driver is when you're into leaving and you constantly switch from one category to another you've got that juxtaposition between the categories and yes. students are able to spot the difference between them it's absolutely fascinating, this poll. We, we mentioned earlier on the um, <clears throat> the potential kind of crossovers between variation theory and, mm -hmm. and interleaving. It just strikes me listening to this that it, it reminds me of the use of examples and non-examples. That, that that's almost like this inductive category learning, but instead of 
trying to sort things out into several categories, we're going to use just one category. It either is this or it isn't this. And we're going to juxtapose examples and non-examples. We're going to be careful as well, perhaps using a bit of variation there. So to use your triangle example before, we'll start with a triangle. We'll change one thing. Perhaps we'll make one of the one of the vertices curved. Is that still a triangle? Then we'll open up one of the vertices. Is it now still a triangle? And so on. Do, do you see kind of examples and non-examples being almost kind of a subset of this uh, inductive category learning research. Yeah, from a from a practical point of view, absolutely. It's it's not something that seems to be um, discussed in in or looked at necessarily in research itself, but it it, it seems to be a practical ex- application of it. And I think it is it's discussed in a few um, in a few books uh, for teachers. I, I think um, in Mark McCart's one. I think. Well, you know, don't quote me on that about um, sort of you know interleaving uh, effects being similar to sort of showing examples and non-examples. But you know, in the um, oh, it was I think, the, I think you might have edited this book actually, Craig. It was one of the research head ones about direct instruction, and it's a chapter by Don, to, uh, Tom Needham, I think it is, um, and he um, he talks about sort of providing an example and a non-example um, in a way that um, really highlights. The discriminative feature between them, mm. uh, which relates quite a lot to this uh, Cavolo and Goldstone uh, set of research articles that they released, um, which really like picks out a, a tiny nuance in the discriminative yes. contrast mechanism, um, and that is, uh, like, if the discriminative contrast mechanism, if the benefit is the fact that it allows you to spot the difference between categories, are there any occasions where you might? benefit from comparing within a category to, and look for similarities mm. and they they looked into that by um having a series of of tests from remember where the 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 they changed the nature of the items so in one case all the items look very similar to each other and in another case all the items look very different to each other and um what they seemed to find was that and we'll paraphrase in, in a bit of a backwards way but when all the exemplars look very similar to each other the easiest way to learn to categorize information is by looking for differences. Mm. Between, and those differences are most likely to be noticeable when you switch from one category to another. That way interleaving seems like to be the better strategy to use. Whereas if all the examples look very different to each other, and they are all overtly different, then um, if you're looking for differences, you're going to be a spot for choice. You're not going to be yes. sure which ones are the important ones. So in that case, you might be better looking for similarities within a category um, and that way, you know, those similarities are most likely to be noticeable when you switch from examples within the same category, which you do with, with, with blocking. Mm-hmm. So you imagine one being like, everything like kind of looks the same, but when you switch from one category to another, something changes, that must be important. Whereas the other is everything looks really different, but as you stay within the same category, something stays consistent and that must be important. Yes. What seems to be good, they like kind of phrase it in, in a sort of backwards way and say that when you switch between categories, your attention is drawn towards differences and those differences will be more like, most likely to be highlighted by keeping everything else the same or as similar as possible and vice versa. Um, but that seems to be doing something quite similar to what variation theory seems to be doing. And that is by systematically changing some things and not others, you're trying to draw the, the learner's attention towards an important feature. And in, um, in that research ed book, um, where you're talking about examples and not examples, I think he gives the, it's been a bit years since I read it, but I think it gives the example of, you know, providing lots of whack, uh, sort of uh, overtly different 
um, examples of the same thing to kind of show the boundary cases mm. and you can see what they all have in common, but then also contrasting something that, uh, that is the category with something that isn't and they look very, very similar. So that way it draws attention to, well, what, what is that tiny difference that makes it now not the category anymore? Yes. Um, but I would, I would encourage anyone to go away and read his words because they're far better than mine. <laughs> That's really interesting that. Again, just, just thinking about some of the sequences I'd write for... Um, for my variation theory website and just just for general teaching i often focus on the former there where it's hold everything constant change one thing and what impact does that have on on the outcome but i also and that's again focusing on the differences but i also now you've mentioned it and i've never thought of this before what is also quite powerful is when you have a question and let's say the answer comes out to be 17 or whatever and then the next question is just something that looks on the face of it completely different, but the answer still comes out to be 17. So then you know something has got to be invariant there. What is it? It looks on the face of it like everything's changed, but maybe perhaps when you look a bit deeper, ah, wait a minute, okay, the first number has tripled and the, the second number has gone down by a third or something like that. And it's it's that relationship which is held constant. So yeah, where, where the majority of times... On the face of it, it looks like just one thing's changed and the outcome's changed. It can be quite powerful for the outcome to stay the same and it look like the input's changed completely, if, if that makes sense. So I think that's really interesting, that Paul. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, just, it's like uh, it's the same question, but dressed up in a different disguise. Yeah, I think that's quite I think it's a really powerful thing for students to see. Yeah, I think so. Um, just before we turn our attention to your doctoral research, can I just ask you one big question about, uh, about your reading of interleaving research, yeah. if that's okay, Paul? And that is... Um, Anytime I give a talk about spacing or I read spacing research, one thing that's always in my head is I'm always looking for, you know, the kind of the golden ticket, which is what's the optimal spacing, mm. spacing intervals. So how long do we leave between exposures to things and so on? And there's been there's been some really nice attempts to do this, both in terms of the research and also Damien Benny's like tried a classroom experiment for this for teaching of science, trying to space out before um, an exam and so on. I have the same view when I'm reading um, interleaving research that I'm always looking for what is the optimal time to block versus and then switch to switch to interleaving now again we've spoken about how it's not that kind of clear cut earlier on but it still strikes me that some kind of fluency or competency or whatever you want to call it, it needs to be attained before we start challenging students to method select to switch between to discriminate and so on or or is it is it not that simple Paul have you any any thoughts on when is the yeah do, do, do students need a, a period of block practice before we start mixing things up a bit yeah I think it's it's not quite as as black and white as you mm. said and uh, to duck out of it a slight slightly bit I'd probably say it's it's about what you're trying to achieve at a particular time yes so I like I was thinking about this the other day because um you I was, I was listening to your, your Chris Bolton and um Watson podcast about um and talk about Pythagoras it's, it's always a popular topic <laughs> yeah. um and it's it's an example you give quite a bit in term in your um in your books as well and I was thinking about like you know uh, if you go straight from solving Pythagoras questions in a pure sort of fluency way, and then the first time you see a Pythagoras problem is in a lineup of SSDD questions, mm -hmm. and that's one hell of a jump because yeah, you know, yeah. students might not necessarily be thinking very, you know, be thinking about Pythagoras at all when they're looking at those questions because every yes. Pythagoras question they've seen before is kind of like a really obvious one. So yes. there needs to be some sort of in between time. I thought about well, you know, maybe. It's, 
with something like Pythagoras, maybe to begin with, I might you know get get students to practice it in a very obvious, clear way. With, you know, where the triangles are very clear to see. You know, sometimes find the longer side first. They might do a bunch of questions block together trying to find a shorter side. And at some point, I want to mix them together mm-hmm. so they are because they, they are switching between long and short and trying to decide when to add and subtract. And then you know have some ones where they're trying to figure out what's right angle or not. But then uh, maybe after that. I might say, okay, well, you know what, folks, you, um, you're clearly pretty good at using the Pythagoras' formula when the triangle's really obvious. Let's take a look at these four questions that, that all look completely different to each other. They look different to all the ones you've done before. In fact, they don't even look like they belong in this chapter. They are so different in the way they look. But let me reassure you, you can use Pythagoras mm, to solve all these nice. questions. And you know what that does is the purpose behind that is to, to one highlight to students, not all Pythagoras questions look the same. Mm. Well, actually, they're practicing a skill there. They're, they're practicing abstracting right angle triangles from various bits of information yes. or, or you know, trying to spot the right angle triangle in there, which is a key skill. And it's not necessarily, even though you might know already to use Pythagoras, it doesn't necessarily make it any easier because the first time a student sees a find the distance between these two coordinates question, it's not obvious how to use Pythagoras, even yes. if you tell them that they do. So yes. I think that's an important thing to do first as well, and not to, not necessarily to abandon those doing Pythagoras problems in a Pythagoras lesson altogether. But then maybe after that, I might say, right, okay, you, you, you're pretty good at that, abstracting triangles and, and remodeling questions into Pythagoras questions. I wonder if you can now decide when to do it. Look at these four mm. questions. They all look very similar. You might think you can use Pythagoras in them all, but naturally only one of them is Pythagoras. The other three require to use different things you've learned. I wonder if you can figure out what to do in each question. Yes. And now they're practicing something a bit different. Then maybe after that, I might say, right, okay, brilliant. You've, you've, you've convinced me you're pretty good at Pythagoras. What I want to see now is, will you remember it in the future? And will you be able to spot a Pythagoras question in the wild? So I'll give you a warning, kids. I, over the next few months, I'm going to keep sneaking Pythagoras questions in every now and again. And I wonder if you'll spot it and remember what to do. And that's like a, a different purpose again for, for what I'm doing. But it's the purpose that drives everything we're doing. Um, more so than trying to decide when to switch between blocking and deleting. That's lovely, that part. That's lovely. Because, again, it goes straight to the heart of an error that I've made, which is the reason I think I've kind of abandoned that kind of bridging phase that you talk about, where it's here are questions, they're all Pythagoras, but can you find the Pythagoras within them, is that my choice of questions has been so poor that it's been really obvious what the Pythagoras was. So you have your classic ladder leaning against the wall. There's a picture <laughs> of the ladder leaning against the wall. Like the, the right angle triangle is just staring at you. Mm. So you can almost get away with not even reading the context. And that's mm. when I talk about autopilot. That And you see this often. I mean, to be fair, I'm putting myself down here, but I'm also going to put a few textbooks down here because you often see this. Yeah. And it's labeled as AO2 or even AO3 sometimes. Um, and for, for, for people who aren't familiar with that, these are assessment objectives. So once you get into assessment objective two, we're talking about using and applying. But in fact, you don't have to read any of the words or the context at all. You just look at the picture. Oh, it's mm-hmm. a right triangle. I'll do just exactly what I've been doing in the fluency questions. And I'll just and I'll be absolutely fine. And you get this what I call this illusion of mastery where the kids think they're doing something a bit more sophisticated and the teacher does, too. So that's why I've abandoned those and jumped straight to the SSDD. But I think you're right. I think there's room for a bridging phase where it's just a better choice of question where, yeah, sure, they're all Pythagoras, but it's not immediately obvious where the Pythagoras is within them. I think that makes a lot of sense. That's going to really change what I do going forward there, Paul. That's that's excellent, Matt. 
Thank you. Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to pop. That's brilliant. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you, is there anything else you want to talk about about the research before we move on to your specific research, Bob? Um, I'm trying, uh, trying to think. I think uh, we've, we've covered a lot of the, mm. lot of the new ones. Oh, actually, yeah, one actually probably the most important thing actually <laughs> about you know these. Um, so I mentioned earlier that you know the, the the practice assignment one, the students are taught something and then like they're interleaving while they're practicing. And like mm. call these inductive category learning ones, which is what I'm sort of focusing on my own research. One of the most interesting things actually is that there's there's no teacher involved in these. Um, the, the fact that it's inductive category learning, what's being tested is well, if the students or participants are trying to figure out for themselves how to categorize these two different you know these these different mm. things. Um, is it better to do it in a blocked way or interleaved way? But like, while in, in, in schools, inductive learning does go on, it, there is always a teacher presence yes. and you wouldn't necessarily just leave it to chance and induction to do that. What's, what's more likely to happen in a school is a teacher will say, look, this is how you know it's a Lowry painting. You know, this is how you know it's a, a Finch or whatever it is and, and provide some exposition, which is what seems to be missing a little bit from... Um, some of the inductive category learning styles of studies. Eglinton and Kang touch that a bit by um, they highlight the discriminative features in red to try and draw attention to them. But um, I find it particularly interesting as a maths teacher thinking, well, I wouldn't just show them loads of examples in either a blocked or interleave way. I'd, I'd probably explain to them this is how you know what corresponding angles are, this is how you know uh, whatever, which is kind of um, where I'm, I'm trying to pick up really with my own research. Got it. Well, you've teased us there again, uh, Paul. <laughs> Holmes in the, under the hammer style again. Well, what is your uh, doctoral research about then? So I'm looking at uh, trying to um, understand a bit more about interleaving and how it works in mathematics, particularly interleaving for the sake of inductive cat- for, for category learning, mm-hmm. whether inductive or not. Um, and, and the hope is to sort of add to the field of research, um, and because I think the work of of Rora and Bjork is, is and, and people like that is brilliant, and um, the more people you can add to it, the better. Uh, but also to sort of think about uh, how it applies in my own context as a as a high school mathematics teacher. Um, so um, what I'm looking to do is is replicate something a bit like the um, the painting thing, but change a few things to make it a bit more um, appropriate for my own setting. So for example, by changing the images from paintings. Uh, which are ill-defined categories to uh, mathematical images like um, of trying or ge- like geometry, for example. I wanted to, first. I just wanted to just double check that it, it, the, the interleaving effects still do occur. I think mm. if I was to guess, I would think they would because the Eglinton and Kang uh, research would suggest that it does um, with with the chemical compounds. Um, but it's 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 worth knowing that for myself as a maths teacher, um, and then also. Because interleaving is pretty much only ever compared to blocking, um, and they're not the only two options available. I, I want to throw in like a, like a third thing to see: well, is is there anything else we could do as a teacher that taps into the same mechanisms and is either just as good as as interleaving? So there's a third group, which is exposition, um, and the way it kind of uh, I've done two um, studies uh, experiments already, which have both. Gone, gone wrong. <laughs> um, but the uh, kind of what's going on with those was uh, like, like in the painting ones, students are sat at a computer, uh, images flash up of uh, the first time I did with I did it with hypotenuse opposite and adjacent, nice. um, and it would say the name, the, the the category, and and what it is. And then for students in the blocking group, they have like five seconds on each 
of the hypotenuse and five seconds you know, for each opposite one. For interleave group, it'll switch between them. And then for the exposition group, it'll they'll just watch like a video. It lasts the same amount of time as... Uh, I'm trying to, try to make it all equal, you know, the amount of time that we see the other things, where it's it's a bit of a voiceover saying, look, kids, this is how you know. <laughs> Not nice. quite as northern as that. Uh, but this is how you know. <laughs> this is what the hypotenuse was. Um, and the first one I did, my sample size was was um, way too small. I found it's just really, it's, it's really hard practically to do research yes. in schools because um, I couldn't get enough computer rooms at once and then like kids were off school and stuff like that so the sample size is too small and i had a major ceiling effect where 90 percent of the students scored nearly full marks so no group could distinguish themselves so i repeated it again with my second second time but i changed the categories to something a bit harder Mm. Um, i changed it to um angle relationships and parallel lines so you got uh corresponding interior alternate and exterior alternate and in co-interior and co-exterior and vertically opposite um, so they're a bit more subtle, mm. uh, and there's more categories to do. I did it with younger kids as well because that's because I need them to do it before they, they really learn about yeah. it. Um, but the the problem there that time was um, the opposite. It was the the average score was pretty much at, it was chance level, uh, so oh, the right. they could have got the same score if they just randomly guessed every single one. And looking at the response times. Um, I think, uh, was it 10, 11% of responses were under 0.75 seconds? So, <laughs> um, and also, I got, I got struck down, uh, like, plea COVID a bit. My, uh, I got halfway through the experiment. Um, about 399 students had done it, but I had another 400 to go, and lockdown three happened. Wow. So that cut it short. So I'm trying I'm probably to do it one more time. Uh, with a, a few tweaks, so it's it's somewhere like the, like the uh, Goldox and Three Bears. One's too easy, one's too hard. I'm trying to get in the middle. Uh, I've changed a few things about the test as well. I'm hoping to do it with as as, as, as big sample size as I can to to make the study as um, as powerful and um, and robust as possible. Really, so that's kind of what I'm doing next. I'm really, just, I'm just interested to see kind of, um, I'm not rooting for anything in particular. I I, I just think it's it's gonna be really interesting to see. Um, like particularly what 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 results show in terms of of, of blocking into leaving an exposition and and kind of whether or not different parts of the test um, are, are different for different groups and, and and hopefully regardless of what the results are by pondering on the results like I did with that um, homework experiment I talked about earlier by pondering on the results and think about well why is this the result I can learn a little bit more about um, what what effects uh, each 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 thing has really. I didn't explain that homework thing, did I? I just I teased that up earlier and forgot to go back to it. <laughs> it's really just on, on that, that study. It sounds absolutely fascinating, Paul. My, my um, Again, everyone has instincts, don't they, When you before you start research. You try and kind of fight against them. My instinct would be that the, almost like a hybrid approach would be most effective with a bit of with a bit of exposition followed by this inductive category learning. But it's... It'd be really interesting. What what whatever you find there, because they've they've all got big implications, right? Like if if the inductive category learning significantly outperforms the the other ones, then <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's interesting, isn't it? Or if yeah, yeah I'd be fascinated what what comes out. And again, it's the your classic thing in the the classroom context. You've always got a bit of everything going on, and it's it must be it must be near impossible to design research experiments that that isolate all that and and so on. It's 
yeah, it's it's interesting. Can I can I ask you as well, just before we move on to some practicality, just just circling back to your homework um, favorite failure that, that you mentioned uh, earlier on. Knowing what you know now, Paul, what, what what would you do different there? Because again, it, it strikes me that it, it seems a smart thing thing to do. Did you, what, why did it go wrong? Uh, I'm not sure what I'd do different, but I think when I, I learned about the mechanisms uh, a bit more, it, I kept relating it back to that homework experiment to try and understand why it went wrong. And I think it just, it didn't tap into any of those mechanisms, uh, really. <laughs> so like, uh, I look at one of the interleave worksheets and it doesn't really tap into the discriminative contrast mechanism because you've got equations and you've got angles and you've got um, areas of rectangles and stuff mm. students don't need to learn to tell those apart so juxtapose them with each other ain't going to help with discriminative yes. contrast and then we think about well the attention attenuation sort of reduction idea i looked at one of the blocked worksheets it was I, all the questions were equations but every equation was a different structure yes, and yes. each one required a different strategy to get to the solution so it's not like students could go into autopilot yes. and just repeat the same thing again and again if all the questions had been 3x plus 2 equals something, 5x plus 2, you know, then, mm. then I, I'd, see, I'd, I'd probably see a slightly different effect of that or a different result. But the fact that each equation made them think about something different meant they couldn't quite kick into autopilot, which is also probably similar reason to why the practice retrieval mechanism didn't necessarily kick in was because each equation was different. So uh, whether they were in the block group or interleave group, when they got to the equation that had brackets in, and it's the only equation that had brackets in. They couldn't think back to last time they did one with brackets because they hadn't done one before. Yes. Um, if if the homework had all been equations of brackets, then I could probably see a need to space those out because if they got one right, they'd probably get them all right. If they get them yes. one wrong, they get them all yes. wrong. At least by spacing them out, you've got some time to give a bit of feedback in between and they can get some other things right in the homework, you know, if there's different mm. topics. But this particular equations worksheet um, probably didn't need to be spaced out so much. Um, it, and it's same also with the area one was a more obvious one. I don't know why I didn't think of this because um, all the shapes are different. So they all require a different formula. So it, like yeah. there's no repetition in in, uh, in either case uh, for blocking or interleaving. So I think that's why that didn't go right was, was because of the content of the worksheets, um, not necessarily um, benefiting from either interleaving or blocking, I guess. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. Um, all right. Well, just to kind of start to bring this together, um, I wonder if we can just turn our attention now to practicalities. So having read all you've read, having taught for many years, Paul, tried numerous things out, um, well, what's how's your research influenced or changed your teaching? Well, I think... Um, I'm not necessarily uh, replicating what researchers did as much. Um, I think that was probably something I kept trying to do was I'd, I'd, I'd read about a piece of research, go, oh, I'm going to do that exactly as it was in my, in my classroom. And that's probably never the intention of the research in the first place. It's more of a naivety for myself, really. Um, but I am, I'm, I think I am still using mixed assignments, uh, but not as much as I did. I'm trying to use them a bit more purposefully for like revision and precisely what I want to use them for, really. Mm. Um, but that's not so much been my focus. I think the biggest thing that this um, read about interleaving has done is that I find myself think about discriminative contrast a lot more um, when I'm planning lessons because there are a lot of things that um, students mix up in mathematics because they look very similar. You know, a really silly one which annoys me, is um, equations like 3x plus 7 equals 5x minus 1. 
and simplifying expressions like 3x plus 7 plus 5x minus yes. 1. Like, it winds me up when I see a kid in an exam, whether it's one of my own kids or a mark in a, d- a different exam, and they try to solve the latter like it's an equation yeah, rather yeah. than collect the like terms. So it's got me thinking about, well, there's lots of occasions like that. And if these, if these things are winding me up. Then maybe <laughs> I should make a more conscious effort to explicitly contrast things that students mix up. And I think um, in sort of a, I think it came out in lockdown one, um, I wrote an article for the uh, Mathematics Association Journal, and that kind of touches that quite a bit, really, looking at things that students mix up and um, how contrasting with each other can help uh, students tell a difference between them and and doing it explicitly. Now, that might be um, by providing them in like a mixed exercise where you have you know questions on on one and questions on the other, for example, or it might be. Um, you know, one example of that could be a mixed exercise. You've got trigonometry and Pythagoras or area and circumference of circles, for example, because students use the wrong formula for area and circumference. So having an exercise that chops and changes between those can be really helpful. But it might be that I, um, I just I slip a cheeky question in from one topic into an exercise of another. So the other day I had a, a bunch of um, questions on solving equations. I did put in one sim- cheeky simplify expression question to see if like students would spot it and they did uh it kind of made that point just watch out for that and then um or it might just be a case i i display them side by side on the board and get students to discuss the differences between you know in in pairs or um i might explicitly to discuss it but just whatever strategy i use being very conscious that there are things that students mix up and try to address that and because if i don't address it or plan it into my lessons i can't assume that students will just pick up on it themselves and the um the okay, the, can I, so, oh, on, yeah. apologies for interrupting just on that part so m- m- I, th- I think that that example you gave is a really powerful one with the equations the, the yeah. 3x plus 5 whatever was equals 5x uh, plus whatever and my instinct there and again I, I didn't do this for many many years but my instinct these days is that if we're going to draw students attention to that and i really like this label now this discriminative contrast if we're going to go for that it makes sense to keep the numbers the same to keep yeah. as much the same as possible and just so students attention is drawn to the thing that's changed in this case the plus signs become an equal sign or whatever it may be is that your instinct too or or is there a place for completely changing all the numbers does does that serve any purpose no i think that touches on that that sort of cavallo and goldstone um stuff about you know um when you switch in between categories of everything's the same or very similar it it highlights the differences so i uh, you know other examples could be when um you got an equation with x plus one all over two equals something and x over two plus one. I think having those numbers being the same, it just really, really draws attention to, well, uh, the the only thing that's different is yes. the, fra- you know, the fraction line. Let's think about what effect that... And another one, which I, I quite like, is um, uh, Pythagoras and trigonometry and trying to decide when you use Pythagoras and when you use trigonometry. I don't dwell on this too long, but I'd, I'd make sure I, I do it at some point. But you know, if if those if you have two questions side by side and the orientations are different, the numbers are different, and the units mm. are different, there's so many things to distract about. Well, distract students about thinking, well, what is it precisely that makes a difference? But if you've got two questions side by side that are in the same orientation, and the Pythagoras question has sides that are thirty centimeters and forty centimeters, and find the hypotenuse, and the trigonometry one. As the same orientation, it has an unknown hypotenuse, but has a side of thirty centimeters, an angle of forty degrees. Yes. You've got everything's the same there, and it just it, it, it might hopefully I don't know, but it, hopefully 
it'll highlight the fact that one is about an angle and the other one is about sides in particular. And that, that slight shift from one to the other changes the strategy you use. Fantastic. And sorry, I interrupted you then. Was, was there more in terms of the research influencing or changing your teaching you wanted to touch upon? No, well, we interrupt me. You, you read my mind because I was asked to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good to know. Well, I'll tell you what then, Paul. Um, again, as we move towards the end, um, we, we love practical suggestions on this on this podcast, and we, it's been rammed full of them um, already here. But I wonder if if people are listening to this and they want to kind of tap into some of the power of some of the, the, the kind of studies that you've read and the the, the findings that they've come up with. Um, any practical suggestions of, of where teachers might start with this? Um. I'd probably say um, maybe. Well, I think the problem with reading uh, empirical research is it's pretty it's pretty dry, and also <laughs> one one article itself doesn't provide a full picture. Yes, um, and and is looking very much from a research point of view. I think some places which are good to look at. Um, there's, there's an argument against what I'm about to say, but is to is to look at things like. Um, uh, books for teachers, for example. So I mentioned the the research ed one with Tom Needham. Sort of, he explained. I think it's Tom Needham. I might have given credit to the completely wrong author. <laughs> sorry, um, but I, where he explains like the use of examples and on examples and different examples and how to vary that sort. Of, you know, read that and, and also your own book as well. I'm not just to say it because you're in front of me, but you, you, you do discuss interleaving in a very sort of um, relatable, applicable way that is you know, very specific to mathematics. Um, and you talk about sort of very authentic ways to sort of tap into the me- mechanisms uh, of interleaving. I think re- you know, read stuff like that and, and just think to yourself, okay, rather than trying to crowbar interleaving into lessons, just think about, well, how can I produce the same effect? You know, or even if not that, but just think, well, what is it I'm trying to achieve? Yes. And every now and again, you might think, oh, you know, it'd be good to actually mix these two categories together. But wait for that sort of, moment to come up because it's it's what you want to do not necessarily do it the way around and try and crowbar into leaving in into lessons yeah really really smart advice that i'm gonna when i reflect on my takeaways at the end of this mm-hmm. i think that's going to be a big one what what is the purpose of, of what you're trying to achieve here i think it's a really big one um aside from from that because I, I, that, that's a kind of a really good answer to, to my my final question on the practicalities thing um, is there anything that teachers should watch out for? Anything you yourself have learnt that either makes interleaving more likely to be effective or less likely to be effective? Um, again, any, any takeaways there, Paul? Um, I think with with, with interleaving, uh, it's uh, I, I, like I wish I knew the answer to that properly. I think maybe, hopefully, I want to finish my thesis. <laughs> I will. <laughs> um, but I, I just keep hammering home that message about um, thinking about the mechanisms rather than the strategy. And yes. um, like, who cares what it's what it's like? If you're reading about interleaving, yes, you need to know what it is. But day to day, as a teacher, who cares what it's what it's called? Uh, just think about you know if you want to keep something ticking over or, or practice retrieval, do this. If you want to draw attention to the differences between something, do that. Um, and, you know, and, and there's some nice advice in there about had to highlight differences, keep everything the same, to highlight similarities, maybe change a lot of things and show lots of Pythagoras questions in different ways. You know, and, uh, I'd probably really urge people to um, think about the mechanisms more than anything else. I had, I've got some words of warning, I guess, I forgot about uh, research in general too, because uh, I think that's been an interesting um, change of attitude for myself over the last few years um, by sort of being a teacher 
um, 80% of the time and sort of uh, being a bit of a wannabe amateur researcher for the other 20% of the time. It's, it's, it has made me reflect quite a lot about uh, how I view and use research in general to inform my own practice, really. Um, well, do you want to do, on. I mean, it's because all I was going to ask you before we turn our attention to your big three, Paul, is, is there anything else that, that you want to share with us? Is now a good time to dive into that then? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so I, th- I think uh, if I was to give, because there's a lot of, um, there's a big sort of drive for research at the moment, which I think is brilliant, you know, as a, as an amateur researcher, like I'm going to be in the Olympics of research. And, um, <laughs> but, you know, and also as someone who's married to a scientist who became a nurse, I really do buy into the fact that we need to be an evidence-informed profession um, and to, you know, harness research and decision-making. Um, but there's a, there's, a, there's a few things to sort of just to be cautious about, I guess, while, while we're doing it. One is that, you know, research headlines alone don't, don't prov- only, you know, they only provide a fraction of the overall picture or something. They don't give a nuance and Twitter is not the really vehicle for nuance really. So it's, it's just something to be watch out for there really. And like you might read a single piece of, re- of empirical research, but that really gives the full picture something because like we discussed here, the paintings, usually you'll have one piece of research and someone else builds on it and then someone else builds on that. And, in, and it's so, there are systematic reviews which try to synthesize things together and the meta studies by the EEF can be helpful for that too. Um, but one, one of the biggest problems is that teachers don't have the time and, and shouldn't be expected to read loads and loads of research for everything that comes to our attention. You know, in order to, to uh, do the amount of reading I've done about interleaving, I've had to go part-time for five years. Yeah. You know, <laughs> if you ask me about anything else with interleaving, I'm stumped. So, <laughs> it's not sustainable, really. But I think I, I sort of, before um, you, you, you did this podcast and you asked me to think about a few things, I scribbled down like a, um, a few sort of, a bit of a top five, I guess, bits of advice just more broadly about um, being informed by research. Um, if you've got like a, like a top five jingle or anything, you can put a. <laughs> I'll try it well. Top of the pot. I'll, I'll, I'll do you a little one. <laughs> okay, there you go. Let's go for it. Excellent. <laughs> hey, well, the first one's probably the most controversial, and I think it's probably going to wind a few people up. And that is, uh, while there's an argument for teachers and leaders to base decisions on evidence and research rather than solely on anecdotal information or hunches which is sometimes slightly demeaned as folklore, I prefer to call it experience. Um, sometimes that, that point can be made a little, in a little, like, bit of an extreme way. I don't think everyone makes that point in an extreme way, but sometimes it can be. Um, and while I do, like I said, believe that evidence, we should be evidence-informed as, as a profession, um, I think we should also uh, value experience as teachers because um, our experiences are, are helpful and, and important to us. I guess one counter-consideration to, to, to think about is that as teachers and leaders, you know, if you're a teacher or a leader who's had several years of of, of your career, then the amount of, the amount of stuff you know about a certain strategy through research is likely to be absolutely minute compared to the amount you know about your subject through experience. Mm. And it seems sensible to base your decisions on the things you know most about uh, rather than anything else. So, I guess yes, you know, we should be informed by by research, but always measure it against your own experience and. And don't follow it blindly, which I don't think anyone would necessarily do. Uh, but it's it's always just worth watch out for that. So that's number one. It's I'm not, I'm not saying that don't don't you know be informed by evidence and stuff like that. But don't, some people might take what I just said then and take it to the extreme and just more so it's a slightly more moderate balance between the two. Um, number two is look look uh, beyond research headlines. I think we've talked about today quite a bit. They don't 
for the whole picture. And, you know, if you can read more, do. But if not, take a headline, what you hear, and like discuss it critically with your colleagues and open-mindedly and try and relate it as much as you can to your own specific subject and, and your own experiences to make sense of it and think about, well, why did why do we think that might have happened? Even though we don't have time to read about it in a lot of depth, why do we think that might have happened? Um, and, you know... Uh, could that happen in our own situation, I guess, but just look beyond the headlines. Um, third would be uh, using research to not just to look for new ideas, um, like to implement in the classroom or to look for the next big thing or whatever, but, to also, but instead to, or as well, use research to try and understand more about things you already do so that you can capitalize on your own strengths um, rather than always trying to do something new. Um, or maybe try and understand the problem that you faced in the past um, in, in, rather than necessarily looking for something new. And I think your, um, I think your, uh, your, your first book in particular it does that really well and models that really well, particularly these last two points I said, because you sort of you highlight a problem that you found in your own classroom, like you know, kids seem really, really good at Pythagoras, but when it gets to a test, they don't recognize Pythagoras. You have a, a few pages where you talk, discuss your influences um, and what research has influenced your decisions. But then, yeah, yeah, you have a load of pages that talk very practically about, you know, um, your own practice and that side of things, really, rather than, you know, uh, it, it just sort of here's a new thing, let's 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 do it. And I think it's it's a, it's a really good model for um, how to be reflective of research and and mirror against your own experiences um, than, than anything else, really. So no, I, I, I do love that book. I don't just say that's that in front of me. I really do. <laughs> um, and then I think number four is about randomized control trials. Um, a lot of weight is given to them, and quite rightly too, they, you know, they are referred to as the gold standard of education research. And it's what I'm doing for my own research as well, is a randomized control trial. Um, and some, you know, sometimes qualitative research is, is, is looked down upon or referred to as mere journalism in one, in, in one lecturer I once met. Um, I'm not going to get into that argument. Because I am doing a randomized control trial myself, but I guess the point I want to make is that just because RCTs uh, do make really, really good research and are really robust, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are the most helpful thing for a teacher to read themselves. Because um, when I think back to all the papers I've read over the last 10 years or so, the two that have probably made the biggest difference to the way I plan lessons, they're both case studies. One of them is um, an article by Sibylla Beckman, uh, which I'll, I'll talk about later, which has got me into bar modeling. And the other one, um, the deconstructing teacher-centeredness one, which I'll mention again later, is um, like if you read that and you read my blog post about uh, corresponding angles, you'll see the influence there quite a bit because it was just really interesting to read about. And they're both just you know very qualitative kind of um, things that are very specific, very subject-specific, and got me thinking really a lot about uh, the way I teach my own lessons. So you know, don't just um, rely on randomized control trials. And the final one, number five, uh, is uh, try not to get drawn into binary arguments about uh, teaching and learning strategies where people argue that this is good, which means that is bad. You know, whether that is blocking or in versus interleaving or spacing versus massing or direct instruction versus inquiry. You know, teaching strategies, they're not football teams. We don't have to support one and expense the other. But I, I, sometimes when I read on Twitter about you know, people talk about um, direct instruction or inquiry, it's like watching a Merseyside derby, uh, <laughs> how, how sort of like... Uh, adamantly get so I think we discussed today quite a bit but teaching isn't quite so black and white as sometimes uh, the impressions we can get from narratives 
Um, and you know, there, there are merits to using different strategies at different times, depending on your purpose. And the purpose is probably the most important part. And quite often, the, the line between the two contrasting ideas is fairly blurry, blurry, like the interleaving stuff we talked about earlier. And I think your interview with Chris Bolton and Anne Watson really illustrates how you can have different attitudes towards how to get to the end point. But you know, it, there's a lot of there's a lot of crossover really. So, I guess main advice is you know, stay moderate and purpose driven, and you know, be influenced by research, but you know, uh, but related to your own experience and subject, and you know, rather than sort of be a covers band. I'm just trying to repeat stuff that research churches do, like Tom Jones in the early 2000s, where he's <laughs> covering talking head songs. Um, be influenced by it, you know. Be, be the Zootons, you know, where you're, you're influenced by a talking heads, but you write it for your own. If you're, if you're, that's a terrible analogy. I'm I sorry. Like it. No, I like niche, but I like it. That's brilliant, <laughs> that mate. Fantastic. Right. So to wrap things up, uh, let's have your big three, if that's okay. And as ever, links to these will be in the show notes. Sure. Um, so these are, because I've talked about interleaving so much, I'm, I'm not necessarily going to uh, put uh, interleaving things as a big three. All the references I'll send to you, Craig, so you can can put, but yeah, a lot of them are behind a paywall, so I'm sorry about that. Um, so I guess the, the big three relate to the last stuff I've just said then, um, and that is just uh, about research in general. So one of them is an article by Tom Sherrington, which I think is fabulous, which is... Um, what does it mean to be evidence-informed? And he provides a very sort of um, moderate response about how to use evidence to inform our own practice and marry it with our experiences a bit like what I've, um, uh, I've just been talking about. It was really refreshing to read that one. I, I love that. Um, and then the other two are, are case studies. And the reason why I, I flag these up is uh, just to, to highlight the value in, in reading a case study that very, very closely matches your own um, teaching. Um, experience because it's a bit like doing a lesson observation where you, where you read it. So one is um, deconstructing teacher centeredness and student centeredness dichotomy. <laughs> the title is is, is bizarre, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's about corresponding angles and alternate angles, um, and that's um, it's called, called a case study of Shanghai mathematics practice. Um, it doesn't matter at Shanghai. I just I just, I just think it's a, a really interesting way that the that the examples are broken down, and another one is. Um, an article by Sibila Beckman, and that is solving algebra and other story problems with simple diagrams, a method to just demonstrate in grade uh, four to six texts in Singapore. It doesn't matter that Singapore, I just find it really interesting how the bar models were used to illustrate um, word problems, and uh, I, it's, it's kind of made my way into my own practice that way. So whether people find those particular articles interesting for themselves, uh, or just the fact that it highlights that articles like that can be helpful, um, when it's subject specific, um, I hope they've got those in the big three. They're brilliant, mate. Absolutely fantastic. Well, links to those and links to the research papers that Paul's discussed will all be in the show notes. And again, we'll have to complete the trilogy at some point once you finish your doctoral, <laughs> Paul, because as ever, it's fascinating. And Joe Morgan describes you as her favorite blogger, um, oh, and she, nice. she just reads absolutely <laughs> everything going on. I second that. She posts on, as a, particularly when you take a deep dive into um, different topics, I think are absolutely fascinating. And I think to talk today about the influences behind those ideas has been really interesting and to really break down a broader label as interleaving into the depth that you've been able to do and the practicalities that can come out of it has been absolutely fascinating so paul as ever this has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you and i hope to speak to you again in the future thank you absolute privilege i really enjoyed it thank you
So there you have it. There was my conversation with the fantastic Paul Rowlandson. I'll tell you what, I'm going to make a big claim here. Um, I not only think that Paul is one of the deepest thinkers that I've ever had the privilege to, to come across and speak to in uh, maths education, he's also one of the nicest guys as well. If you're ever lucky enough to, to bump into Paul and speak to him, he's just really nice. Nice, calming influence, I find. He, um, yeah, just re re really great uh, guest to, to speak to. So I hope you enjoyed that one. Um, I really like these episodes where we take a deep dive into something. That's why I've really enjoyed the Research in Action series that I did, because we can go deep for an hour, hour and a half, or in this case, I think over two hours, into one particular area. And that means that, yeah, no, no stone is left unturned. I like the other kind of more general episodes where I'm, where I'm lucky enough to have somebody on like Doug Lamarve and just talk about loads of different strategies and ideas, but I like taking these deep dives as well. And as I, as I mentioned in my intro, as I mentioned in my com, um, conversation with Paul, Interleaving has, has been a really important concept for me in my development as a teacher, as a thinker, and so on. It, I came across interleaving at the time where I came across lots of things because I, I first started taking this deep dive into, into research. As I've spoke about many times, I spent the first 12 years of my career blissfully ignorant of, of educational research, just essentially just cracking on uh, teaching um, however I wanted to. And it was only when I had my mid-career crisis that led to uh, my first book, How I Wish I Taught Maths, that I came across, particularly the work of Robert Bjork and the concept of desirable difficulties that, that interleaving is, is right at the heart of. But as I discussed with Paul, I think I, I made the error of, of diving in at the headline. And um, Paul was very kind uh, to say that he thinks I did a fairly good job in how I wish I taught math, speaking about the, the interleaving in terms of research and also the practical implications. But like anything, it's, it's the more you read, the more you speak to people who know far more about it than you do, the more you start to see that there's so much more to, to, to the concept of interleaving, but also that there's a danger that it... it it kind of gets associated with with other things and it's not quite such a, a broad brush. Anyway, hopefully we, we, we dive into that in the conversation with Paul. And I just want to reflect on a few things in this particular takeaway. The first is is the big one for me. And, and really, this should be all, all I talk about because it's, it's such an important concept and such an important mantra, if anything, and that is what is the purpose? Why, why are we doing what we're doing? <laughs> Not just in a kind of holistic life sense, although I'm asking myself that a few times these days, but particularly I'm thinking here about example choices, sequencing, activity choices, and so on. Well, what's the intended purpose? And it really is Anne Watson who got me thinking hard about this whenever I design sequences of questions for my, my variation site. What, why, why have we chosen this initial example? And then why, why is the next one come after it? What, what are we trying to do there? And I, it, it's, it's within the kind of model of interleaving that, that you can really start to think hard about this. So if I take something like my SSDD problems, same surface, different depth problems that, that Paul and I touched upon in, in the conversation, the purpose for me of those is for students to focus on differences. That's the key there. So here we have four questions that on the surface look similar, but what is the difference? Why is this question require a different mathematical idea, a different method, a different approach to, to the other one? Now, the reason I think SSDD questions are quite powerful is that they, they kind of do two things. They, they focus on this discriminatory um, mechanism that Paul touched upon, but they also do retrieval as, as well. Now you could get the same retrieval effects if you just picked 
four random questions. So I always use the Pythagoras example, so forgive me for this. But if you wanted to um, get some retrieval effects in students, you could have a question on Pythagoras, a question on angle facts, a question on forming and solving equations, and a question on, on area of a triangle, completely disconnected questions. You could give those to students as a starter or as part of a low stakes quiz or whatever, and students would have to think hard about the four different strategies that they need for each of those questions, and you would get these retrieval effects. But as Paul pointed out, at no point there are students being forced to to think hard about the different methods they need for each. They're not being forced to discriminate between, between area of a triangle, Pythagoras, and so on and so forth. But as soon as you start making the surface features similar, so as soon as you start making the same, using the same triangle for each of those four questions, perhaps using the same dimensions, using the same context, as soon as there's similarities in there, then students' attention shifts towards thinking hard about the differences. And you get more, you still get the retrieval effects, but you get more of this discrimination that needs to come into play. More of what I would in the past refer to as method selection, but now I feel I've got a bit more of a, a vocabulary surrounding it. So what's been nice about this conversation with Paul and reflecting on his research head talk is I now start to see or I can use the, the proper vocabulary for describing the purpose of SSDD problems and how they fit into this landscape of interleaving, but specifically when we're talking about this, this discriminatory uh, mechanisms there. And that's similar, but also a bit different for, for variation. Because when I do my work, when I'm writing my sequences for my variation theory uh, website, again, I think in the past I've been not not thinking hard enough or clear enough about the purpose. Whereas now, having listened to what Anne's been telling me for the last few years and listened to and now been reflecting on Paul's work, that's always got to be at the forefront of my mind. Why am I holding things constant and changing one thing? What do I want students to get out of it? What do I want them to focus upon? And again, I think using the, using the um, explanatory mechanisms that Paul described here, using the concept of interleaving, can really help with this. And as, as Paul and I touched upon, they're intrinsically linked variation and interleaving. I had not quite seen that before. And I think that's because I'd seen interleaving as just, you know, different topics all the time at students, different ideas, mixing things up. But we can, if we use those explanatory mechanisms, we can see us, we can see now a sequence of questions all potentially on the same topic, but now we're changing subtle things without within them we can see that under the under the lens of interleaving as well. So I really I really think these explanatory mechanisms are super powerful. But what I've always got to bear in mind is what is the purpose? What 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 am I doing? What am I intending to do with this sequence of questions? What do I want my students to take out of it? Why am I giving my students these SSDDs? What do, what do I want them to take out of it? I think that's super important. It's tricky. But I think it's, it's probably the most important question that we need to ask ourselves when either creating a sequence of questions, creating some examples, or selecting an activity that somebody else has, somebody else has created that we intend to use. Um, and the final thing I just wanted to mention was I love, that I love the Pythagoras, what I'm now calling kind of bridging questions. So just to, just to go into this a little bit further. Um, what I what I do now with Pythagoras is I would kind of teach the basics, get students fluent on the basics, and then I would start to jump into SSDD so students would learn when to apply Pythagoras and crucially when not to apply Pythagoras and, and also get the retrieval benefits and so on that we, we just spoke about it a couple of minutes ago. 
But I really like this notion now of this, this bridge where Paul is going to give his students questions that are all Pythagoras, but the focus is going to be on the similarities. Why is this question Pythagoras and why also is this question Pythagoras? So I like this for focus on the similarities before we then use SSDDs to focus on the differences. And I've certainly seen it be a big, too big a jump from fluency to SSDD. So I like this notion of bridging. The mistake I've made in the past is I've not thought carefully enough about those so-called Pythagoras application theory questions because, as I mentioned in the conversation with Paul, it was bloody obvious that they were all Pythagoras. It was just Pythagoras dressed up in some daft context about ladders leaning against walls, about footy pitches, working out the diagonals across them and all this kind of stuff. But if I can be a bit more selective and if I can think, okay, what is the purpose of this? And think to myself, okay, the purpose is for students to focus on similarities. Well, then we can do what Paul talked about. We can use things like, here's a pair of coordinates, what's the distance between them? And the, the focus of students' attention there, and we can help support students with this, is why is this a Pythagoras question? And why is this similar to this other question, maybe involving some geometrical shape or something, which is also a Pythagoras question? Well, what are the similarities between them? And once the similarities are established, then we can switch to the differences when we turn our attention to SSDD. So again, it's just one of many things that Paul's left me thinking about and, and left me tweaking and making changes to my sequences of questions and examples. And I'll tell you what, it's something that I, I think is so important as a teacher, but also so difficult to, to, to get right. And I know for 12, 13, 14 years of, of teaching, it was almost kind of the last thing I thought about. I would either get sequences of examples or questions just off TES or something like that, just a you know, standard worksheet or whatever, or I'd just make them up myself either on the spot or the night before. And I, I never had running through my mind, what is the purpose? Why is this question coming after this question? Is it just an increase in difficulty? Do I want to draw my students' attention to something specific? Do I want them to discriminate? Do I want them to practice retrieval? What is the purpose? And I think that's so important, but so difficult to get right. But hopefully this conversation with Paul has well, it's certainly helped me and I hope it's helped you as well. Um, just think about that um, with a bit more of a framework, a bit more of a structure. Anyway, as ever, I've prattled on far too long here. Um, all that's left me to do is thank Paul Rowlandson. Um, I'm, I'm already looking forward to getting him back on the show. Uh, absolutely great guy to get, get a great guy to chat to. Uh, thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music, uh, for Art Maths for sponsoring this episode, and for you, my lovely loyal listeners. Just a reminder, those two CPD courses I, I spoke about at the start, if you want to check those out, one of them completely free about the ultimate scheme of work, how to get the most out of that. And the second one, hopefully you think it's a bargain i'm dead proud of it and um, it's about supercharging worked examples there'll be links to those as well as links to everything we spoke about in the show notes but for now you take care and i'll see you soon bye for now <laughs>